When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Corinth. My name is Jared Halverson. This is Unshaken. And yes, we are studying 1 Corinthians this week. Last week, we studied the first seven chapters of this beautiful letter. And today, we'll study chapters 8 through 13. And 13 is a masterpiece, so I hope you hold out to the end. It's Paul's discourse on charity. Tough to beat. But to, to get up to speed, let's, let's review what we saw last week, and hopefully that will lead into, into our discussion of chapter 8. Most of what we discussed last week was, were the challenges that the saints in Corinth faced because of that city's location, 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 on that narrow isthmus west of Athens. There was the challenge of unity because it was a cultural melting pot with all kinds of dividing lines among the saints. We saw the challenge of immorality since it was a place of comings and goings with unmentionable things happening in between. We saw the challenge of worldliness and materialism, since it's a major trading center, and there's the haves and the have-nots, and saints suing other saints, most likely over economic issues. And we saw the challenge of intellectualism, because this was a sister city of Athens, where philosophy reigns supreme. And we wrestled with milk versus meat, or worldly wisdom versus divine power, religious epistemology, and how we're supposed to know the things of God. Well, there are still going to be challenges in this city and more, of, more things for Paul to address. And in chapter 8, in some ways in every single chapter, he's going to address a different issue. And we'll go through them one by one. But to set the stage for chapter 8, we need to understand something that's happening in Corinth. That if once we do, chapter 8 will make perfect sense. In some ways, it's a similar challenge to what, something we saw in the book of Romans. So let's build off that. Do you remember a couple weeks ago when we talked about, well, I used the example of, of the Pepsi stash my mom kept for granny at uh, the back corner of our pantry, that mom was a caffeinated soft drink bootlegger <laughs> during years of prohibition. And we talked about the challenge of judging versus despising over issues that aren't set in stone. Remember the phrase doubtful disputations from Romans? where caffeinated drinks is a doubtful disputation, but boy, do we tend to dispute over those kinds of things. And there are those that are adamantly opposed to any kind of caffeinated soft drink, and then there are those who are adamantly opposed to those opposers. And, and it often leads to a lot of friction or division or conflict within the, within the church. Now, that's not a major issue, but, th but that's just one, one of many. In fact, I got an email from a friend who said Beards is his example. And sometimes he struggles not judging people who have facial hair, where it's like, oh, come on, follow the brethren and be clean shaven. And yet I'm sure there's despising in return of how dare you judge me for my facial hair. <laughs> yeah, and I'm like, wow, that's a good example. Well, that was one of the issues in Rome because you have these... Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians coming together in hopes of becoming Christian Christians. And you remember the kosher laws from the law of Moses have been fulfilled. And it, they're no longer, it's no longer forbidden 
for them to eat those kinds of foods. But it's also a concern if you, if you Jewish, excuse me, if you Gentile Christians come into church flaunting your cheeseburger or your pulled pork sandwich, then that's going to be offensive to the Jewish Christians that are still maybe not completely convinced that the kosher laws no longer apply. You understand? Back then we talked about being sensitive to other people's sensitivities. And, and that's a noble approach. That's putting someone else and their concerns above something that you don't think is a big deal at all. Okay? It's, it's honoring the other individual. And that's an important thing. Now that's what's going on as far as oh, division over food in Rome. There's a similar division over food in Corinth, and Paul is going to teach some similar principles, but the, the specific situation is slightly different. So let me explain that, okay? Now, to make sense of this, come with me to Corinth on a local festival or feast day. Every, every nation seems to have them, including the house of Israel. And in Israelite feast days, you honor and worship the God of Israel. Well, in, in pagan cities, you honor the pagan gods. In Rome, you have a Roman pantheon. In the Greek Empire, there was a Greek pantheon. Every city seems to have its own patron saint, or in this case, patron deity. We, we saw in Corinth, for example, that there was a temple to Aphrodite. And so are we going to come together as a community and worship Aphrodite together? We're going to come together and worship Caesar, for example, or other kinds of festivals and feasts. I call these... Babylonian barbecues or, or pagan parties, to take whatever, you, take whatever name you want. And Babylon, not that this is Babylon, that was an Old Testament problem, but remember Babylon becomes oh, the symbol for the wicked world. And so though it's Rome now, it might as well be Babylon, same kinds of problems. And so w welcome to the Babylonian barbecue. This is a civic ceremony or a civic celebration, and we want the whole town to show out so that we can honor the local god or goddess. You got it? Now, what happens at these Babylonian barbecues is exactly that. It's a barbecue. Because you are sacrificing some kind of animal to the god or the goddess. And that deity does, didn't seem to come hungry. Most of the food is still here. And so, well, we don't want it to go to waste. So I guess we'll eat the leftovers ourselves. Now, don't, don't think of them too harshly. That's actually a counterfeit of something true. Because didn't the Jews do something similar? Whenever they would sacrifice their lamb without blemish or their, the first thing of their flock, it, was, it became a way of honoring Jehovah and offering something to him. It was that sweet savor that ascended to heaven. And there were certain inedible parts of the animal, of the offering, that were fully consumed in, at the altar of sacrifice. But there were other parts, mostly edible parts, that the priests would eat. I mean, that was how they put food on their table, since they don't have a land allotment to go plant and harvest. It was the way they would feed their families. But also, it was a chance for the, the family of the sacrificer to share together in, in this meal, this worship feast. And in some ways, it was a chance for the entire house of Israel to come together in a community sacrifice, in a community form of worship. So that's beautiful. Pagans just did it in their own way, and it was to pagan gods, and that's the problem. In their case, it was idolatry, and that's something we've got to avoid. In fact, this was such an interesting issue that during the Jerusalem conference, remember back in chapter 15 of Acts, 
when they're deciding how much of the law of Moses has been fulfilled in Christ and what kind of compromises will we make so that we don't offend the Jewish Christians as the Gentile Christians start coming into church. We, they don't have to be circumcised, but can we at least avoid food offered to idols? I mean, there were only a few things that they, that they held on to, but that was one of them. We're going to avoid that. And yet here in Corinth, that's going to be, that's the problem. People are, saints are going to the Babylonian barbecue. Saints want to participate in the pagan party. And maybe in some ways they had a noble purpose. After all, we're supposed to be in the world, even though we're not supposed to be of it. And if I go to these pagan parties, if I, if I come together with my friends and neighbors at the Babylonian barbecue, well, I could be a good example to them. This is a chance. I mean, this is me volunteering uh, in my community. I'm my, my kid's soccer coach, or I'm on the PTA. Uh, I mean, I joined the Lions Club. I, I mean, I'm involved in my community so that a Latter-day Saint can associate with non-Latter-day Saints. Isn't that a good thing? Well, of course it is. But the specific challenge then is, ah, but what if, what if they drink at the PTA meetings? What if there's always alcohol being served at the Lions Club? And so there's this challenge of, I'm going to these community barbecues, I'm being in the world. Well, am I becoming of it? Or am I still holding to my standards even though I'm at a place where those standards are not being kept by others. Are, are you with me on this? You understand what's going on? If so, then I hope chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians will make sense. And yes, some of this will feel repetitious from what we studied back in Romans chapter 14 with the despisers and the judgers and so on. Okay? So with that in mind, dive into 1 Corinthians 8 and notice how Paul addresses the issue. The first three verses put it all into an interesting perspective. He says, Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. Now, based on the context I just described, that's an odd way to begin addressing the issue. But in some ways, it's an ingenious way of addressing it. Because what Paul is doing here is first acknowledging you have a question. And, and I promise I'll address it. But before I do, do you mind if I zoom out? Just back up a bit and, and frame this issue in terms of more important principles. Weightier matters, as Jesus would call them. Rather than just address a singular circumstance, like the pagan party, can we talk about bigger issues like knowledge and charity? Okay, Because that's really what I want to focus on. Remember when Joseph Smith was asked, how do you govern such a diverse people, such a large group? And he says, well, I teach correct principles and then let them govern themselves. Well, the specific issue they're going to have to govern themselves about is do I go to this pagan party or not? Do I participate in the Babylonian barbecue? But the bigger principles I want you to use as you're deciding things are things like knowledge and charity. Okay, that's how we're going to back up. Now, speaking of knowledge and charity, because the way it's phrased here when it says, okay, let's talk about those things offered unto idols, okay, the, the, the pagan party. Now, we know that we all have knowledge. And most likely that was in quotation marks in Paul's original. That most likely came from the Corinthians to him. 
Remember last week we saw often that he was referring to things that he'd heard from the letter he got from the house of Chloe. Uh, and they were bringing up things and he was responding to them. Same thing's happening here. They brought up the idea of, hey, we have knowledge. And the knowledge they had, he's going to get at in the next set of verses. So, so wait for that. But the knowledge they had was such that, hey, it's okay for me go, to go to the pagan party because I know, I know that I'm not going to do anything. I know that this is not idolatry the way I'm doing things because I don't believe in these false gods. I know better, okay? And so because of my knowledge, and remember, think about this. You're in Corinth where knowledge is all important where reason reigns supreme. And we know these things. And so I can go. In fact, I, speaking of knowledge, I might even know better than James and the other church leaders back in Jerusalem. That, that I know they came up with an idea. They came up with a compromise in the Jerusalem council and said, let's not eat food dedicated or offered to idols. I get that. But we know what those idols are. We know that we're not doing anything wrong technically. We are living the spirit of the law, even if it looks like we're breaking the letter of the law. But we know better. And can you picture people saying similar things? So often, it's our knowledge that we invoke when we, when we pit the spirit of the law against the letter and opt for the spirit over the letter. Don't we? I think, I'm hoping that we can think of specific situations that we've dealt with uh, because we're probably not thinking about pagan parties, okay? But think about the way, the way Paul puts it. Yes, you know those things. You know better. Great. The danger with knowledge is that knowledge puffeth up. Remember last week, it's the, pride, it's the proud who are learned that seem to disregard prophetic counsel. And is that what's happening in Corinth? Has your knowledge puffed you up to the point that you think you're exceptions to that rule? And, and maybe you are. Maybe you really do know better and, and you're not guilty of anything, but are you guilty of intellectual pride? Some arrogance there. Because if your knowledge is puffing you up, let's compare that to a different Christ-like attribute, namely charity, which edifieth across the board. It builds people up. There's a dip. That's what edify means, to build up. So it's interesting to puff up or to build up. Which do you want to do? Because puffing up usually is something you do to yourself. Building up is what you do for other people. And so charity, this pure love of Christ, that's what we should be focusing on. Knowledge is good. Charity is better. Okay? So let's frame the specific circumstance, your question, in terms of knowledge and charity. And if we can understand it through that, if we can view it through that lens, perhaps it'll make our decision a little, a little easier to make. By the way, when I sit down with people in faith crisis, they usually have a specific question, something in mind, some historical detail, some, some policy pronouncement, some specific issue that they're really wrestling with. And I don't, I'm not shy about, I'm not trying to avoid that issue. And I always reassure them of that. I, I'm happy to talk about whatever it is you want to talk about. But as I hear them and understand where they're coming from and what they're wrestling with, I'll usually do what Paul does here and say, okay, awesome. We're going to get there, I promise. But can we back up, zoom out, and frame this conversation in bigger issues, in more important eternal principles, like faith and doubt, like 
how God does things, like proving contraries and where you are on the stages of faith. And, and I'm trying to prepare you not just to navigate this specific issue, but the next one you're going to have to, <laughs> because there's always something else that's going to come up until you've learned to address these things oh, in, a, in a healthy way, in a way that is framed by correct principles that apply across the board. You with me? And, and again, knowing that I'm going to get to their issue, they'll usually be patient with me and let me zoom out first. Okay, that's what Paul is doing here. So verse four through six, as concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols. So yes, we're going to get to that. Okay, that's the specific question you have in mind. We're going to talk about this issue about community celebrations and honoring pagan deities. Yes, let's address the Babylonian barbecue. We know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other God but one. Now for this, you gotta, you gotta read it because there's gonna be capital G's and lowercase g's in what Paul is gonna describe here. And since you come, came to me focusing on your knowledge, and yeah, we know that we all have knowledge, I get that. It's that knowledge that puffeth up. But here's what you know. You know that, idol, that idolatry is nothing because or I should say that idols are nothing, once you see through the facade, once you know that that's, that I'm not offering anything to anyone because that anyone doesn't exist. Zeus is a figment of the Roman imagination. Okay, a, a temple to Aphrodite. Who the heck is Aphrodite? It doesn't matter. So while other people might be offering something in true allegiance and worship, to me, it's nothing more than food. It's, it's a chicken wing. It's a, it's a, a lamb chop. It is, it's just dinner. And, and I'm not succumbing to some kind of sinful idolatry as a result. Okay. I know the idol is nothing in this world. There's none other God, capital G, but one. For though there be that are called gods, lowercase g, and that would be Zeus and Aphrodite and everybody else. They may be called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many. And that's definitely the case in Rome. There's a whole pantheon. Okay, we got gods for every day of the week. Some for heaven, some for earth. There's up on Olympus or down here cavorting with, with humans. The, the whole thing about idolatry, in some ways, to a Christian mind, is, is almost hilarious. They... they I'm not fallen for it, okay? Those don't exist. What does exist for us? To us, there is but one God, capital G. This is Christian monotheism, inherited from Jewish monotheism. Thank you, Judaism, for that. There is but one God, capital, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Please, Paul, believe me. I only believe in God the Father. I only believe in Jesus Christ. There is one God, one Lord, capital G, capital L. And I take that belief with me when I go to church. I take that belief with me when I go to work. And you better believe, I take that belief with me when I go to the civic celebration where other people, those around me, seem to be worshiping pagan gods. I'm in the world, 
to make a difference there. But I am not of the world because I know better. Now, how would you react to that? If I were Paul, I'd say, oh, well, good, good on you. I am grateful that you are trying to strike the balance between being in the world and not of the world. That's good. Keep it up. But I do, it's not only you I'm worried about. So notice what he cautions them about in verse 7 and 8. Paul tells them, how be it? So yes, that's all fine and good. You know, and I know that you know, and that's good. How be it? There is not in every man that knowledge. Not everyone gets it. Not everyone knows that there's a difference between capital and lowercase g. Not everyone who goes to the pagan barbecue is, is free of paganism. For some, it is an idolatrous affair, and it's an act of idolatry even to go there. Not everyone gets it. And in fact, it's not only that they don't know that, they might not know that you do know that. And that's a problem too. For some with conscience of the idol, they, they're aware of that idol. They, they have a habit of worshiping it. They're accustomed to the idolatry all around them. And they assume that's what everyone is guilty of when they go. Those that have that kind of conscience of the idol. Unto this hour, eat it as a thing offered unto an idol. That's the assumption on their part. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. If that person were to go to the, the pagan party, they would, their conscience would be pricked. They, their heart would hurt. They would feel guilty by association for even being there. Now you... I know. You know better. I get it. I'm not trying to pass judgment upon you as an idolater. But what I am passing judgment on is what effect are you having on other people? Again, back to the Romans. Are you sensitive to their sensitivities? Even if this is not strictly forbidden. After all, as Paul says in the next line, Meat commendeth us not to God. I get it. The food by itself isn't moving us closer or further away from him. It's beside the point. For neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. You get it? I'm on your side, Corinthians. The Babylonian barbecue is no big deal. We get it. But does everyone? That's my bigger concern. What effect will your actions have on somebody else? Now, I can picture what my kids would say. Well, that's their problem, not mine. Uh, or how about this one? This is an interesting one. I've heard my kids actually say it. I'm not supposed to care what other people think. Hmm. True, to a point. But if what they think is leading them away from where they need to be, and if they're using you as their justification, then yes, we need to care what other people think. There's a Goldilocks zone on this one, too. There's a set of contraries we need to prove. Okay, kids? And they're used to that. Notice how he puts it in verse 9 through 11. Take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. I love the way Paul puts that. Yes, you have liberty. You are free to do this. You're not breaking the spirit of the law, even if you're going against the letter of the Jerusalem conference. I understand. And you are free to move forward along those lines. However, is your freedom becoming a source of bondage to someone else? 
if you are not breaking the spirit, is it going to lead someone else to break both spirit and letter? Is it going to become a stumbling block to someone else? And then he explains it. For if any man see thee, and again, this is where my kids would say, who cares what they're seeing? This, that's them. That's their problem. Okay? I don't, I don't, I'm not supposed to care what they think. Oh, fine. But if any man see thee which has knowledge, you and your highfalutin knowledge, knowing better, but if they see you sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? Now, please hold on to those last four words, because that, speaking of framing things, backing up and seeing the big picture, that's as big a picture as you can get. What Paul is getting at here is, yes, you have knowledge and you have liberty as a result. You know what you're doing and what you're not doing. And I agree, you're not guilty of idolatry just by going what I worry, though, is if you're guilty of uncharity. You are not sinning against God, but are you sinning against your neighbor? I know you're not breaking the first great commandment, but are you breaking the second? Because if there's someone else that lacks your knowledge, that can't handle being in the world because they will end up being of it, you, you might know better. You might have the knowledge and spiritual strength to be able to step in those, into those kinds of situations and, and it never be a problem. Kudos to you. But for those around you, if they see you go and make faulty assumptions, well, if it's okay for them to go, why can't I go? And if they're participating in the Babylonian barbecue, then what's keeping me from going just like they do? Ah, they might lack your knowledge. They might lack your spiritual strength. They might think you're guilty of idolatry, even though you're not. And yet they might truly be guilty of idolatry. And that's the real problem. Because they are as worth, they are as valuable to Christ as you are. That's why he ended there. For whom Christ died. He said almost the same thing to the Romans about their issue, about kosher laws. In Romans 14, 15, he says, but if thy brother be grieved with thy meat, it's so similar to these two circumstances, now walkest thou not charitably. And remember, it was charity that Paul invoked from the start of this conversation. You're not walking charitably. So what was his advice to the Romans? Destroy not him with thy meat, for whom Christ died. Same four words that he uses for the Corinthians. Do you not understand the infinite worth of the human soul? And if you'll back up and see that Jesus died for them, just like he died for you, then perhaps we'll be a little bit more sensitive to their sensitivities. Perhaps we'll be a little bit more careful because Jesus came to save us all. We were all in the same sinking ship, right? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being yet sinners, Christ came to die for us all. And if I can do anything or refrain from doing anything so that they can stay close to Christ, so that their conscience is not offended, then so be it.
I'll avoid these things. This is being the bigger person. This is being big enough to be small. This is being sensitive to other people's sensitivities. Let's use an example that might be a little closer to home. Let's say there's a work party where alcohol is going to be served, and you know it, but you also know your spiritual strength, and that alcohol is not a temptation for you. Would you go to the party? Well, whether you do or whether you don't is going to be up to you, and Paul seems to be leaving it up to them as well. I know you know, and I honor that. But I also wonder what would other people think if they saw you go, knowing that there's alcohol served. In fact, we can even make this stronger. Let's say you go, and the ones closest to you know that you don't drink, and you're not going to lower your standards for anybody's sake. And so they give you an apple juice instead of a beer. Well, those do look a lot alike if they're not in a can. And while you know you're drinking apple, uh, apple juice and you're the friends closest to you know that as well, imagine there's some new convert uh, or some other church member that's there and sees you and assumes that it's alcohol and walks away not only judging you, but perhaps hmm, convincing themselves that those kinds of things are okay. Well, the ends justify the means. Obviously, so-and-so thought so. Brother so-and-so thought so. Maybe you, maybe you get a mocktail instead of a cocktail. And so it's non-alcoholic. And I know that. And the bartender knows it. But if other people looking on assume it's a cocktail, then do they think they're okay in ordering one as well? You understand the challenge? I actually had an experience when I was in high school. I tended to avoid the parties because I, I knew what took place there. And sometimes my own friends would tell me to avoid it because they knew what was going to take place there too. But I remember one, I think it was my senior year, and it was like, oh, end of the year, and everybody's going to be there, and just kind of one last hurrah. And I remember wanting to go, and, and my dad suggested. He didn't lay it out on the, uh, as a law. He didn't absolutely forbid me. He just cautioned, son, I'm not sure if you should go to that party. And at first, I was offended, thinking that my dad mistrusted me. And I'm like, come on, dad, I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to commit, I'm not going to break the law of chastity. And my dad's response was so inspired. It stopped me in my tracks. And all of a sudden, not only did I stop fighting him, I completely agreed with him. And I decided not to go to the party. Now that's, that's a powerful conversation. What did my dad say? When I said, Dad, I'm not going to break the word of wisdom. I'm not going to break the law of chastity. My dad simply said, I know, son. It's not you I'm worried about. Wait, huh? It's not me you're worried about? Now again, that was comforting to me. That was reassuring. My dad trusts me, and I'm grateful for that. But if you're not worried about me, who are you worried about? Well, my dad was in the state presidency at the time, and he was worried about our entire stake, particularly the youth within it. And he explained to me, I know, son, you could go to this party and not do anything wrong. But I do worry about some within the stake that might struggle with the word of wisdom or law of chastity. And just being there might lead them to, to make some major mistakes. And my biggest concern is if they know that Jared Halverson is going. Because they know you and they know your standards. And if they think that, well, Jared can go, then why can't I
Can you picture some other youth convincing their parents? President Halverson said that Jared could go. Why wouldn't you say I can go? And that made such sense to me. And I didn't want to be used as justification for someone else's transgression. Maybe that's even putting it poorly. I didn't want to lead someone into harm's way, even if it was harmless on my part. If, if I was things that I knew I could handle, but someone else couldn't, I didn't want to lull them into some false sense of security that everything's okay because I'm going. You understand? My dad was incredibly wise in saying that. And thankfully, I saw that wisdom and agreed with it and didn't go. Paul is simply asking the Corinthian saints, these knowledgeable, well-meaning Corinthian saints, instead of focusing so much on your knowledge, which is good, can we focus on charity, which is even better? And rather than, it's not these pagan gods, I have a testimony of the true God, good. But do you have a testimony of the importance of your neighbor? For whom Christ died. Can you be careful for their sake? And as Paul put it, and I love the way he ends this chapter, verse 12 and 13. When ye sin so against the brethren. And again, you can picture them like, wait, 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 wait but I'm not sinning. Well, no, the act itself was not a sin, but its effect on others might make it sinful. So when you sin against the brethren, you're not sinning against God, you're sinning against people that God loves infinitely. So when you do that and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ, since after all, he died for them. And once you understand that, once you can wrap your head and heart around that reality, then the final phrase is easier for us to say. And here it is. Wherefore, as though consequently, as a result of everything I've walked you through for the last 12 verses, wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. That's how much they matter to me. Because that's how much they matter to Christ. That is such a beautiful and selfless commitment to care for your neighbor, to be your brother's keeper. Even if you, even if it forces you to become more sensitive to things that you know in the long run don't really matter. Are we going to be big enough to be that person? Are, or are we going to expect someone else to be the bigger person in these things? Oh, they're the one with the weak conscience. Let them grow up. Well, could you give them time to? Could you be a little more gentle? A little less judgmental? But they're the ones judging me. I know. Best case scenario, both of you are big enough <laughs> to handle this. And they don't judge you and you don't despise them. But in the meantime, since you can't control them, can you control yourself? Like I said, this is so similar to the problem in Romans 14. Paul will say a similar thing in concluding that conversation as well. This was Romans 14, 21. 
It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth, or is offended, or is made weak. Same idea. But the language in 1 Corinthians, to me, is so much better, so much more powerful. Because it's permanent. I'll never do it. As long as the world shall stand, I'll give up on that. If it's a way to protect my brother. Now again, if we've zoomed out sufficiently, and if we've learned the correct principles so that we can now govern ourselves, if we place charity as the highest Christ-like attribute, because it edifies everyone around you, then would you please fill in the blanks? Replace meat and Babylonian barbecues. Replace caffeinated soft drinks or, or facial hair or whatever it is with whatever you're wrestling with. And wherever you might be judging or despising and fill in these blanks. If blank, please let the Spirit whisper what it should be. If this, make my brother or sister to offend, then I will blank, no blank. <laughs> I will do that no more. I will never do that potentially offensive thing while the world standeth, lest I make my brother or sister to offend. You may need to pause the podcast to allow the Holy Ghost to whisper what you need to put in those blanks. You may need to wrestle with this. You may need to inventory what you know and decide in what areas should charity trump your knowledge. Where can I be even more careful? Not because it changes my relationship with God, but because it might affect someone else's relationship with Him. That would be big of us. I pray we can be that big. Now from there, Paul is going to shift to a new, a, an, another issue. He's going to lay that to rest and then bring up something else that's on the Corinthian mind. And this one affects him. And he's trying, it actually shows how careful he's been. And he's going to bring that up because what he's going to deal with in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians is serving without purse or script. And Jesus had com commended his apostles to that and just trust that just like I clothe the lilies of the field and I provide for the fowls of the air, I've got you covered too. But how? Uh, does he just grow things for them? Well, yeah, you can glean on the way. But also, will people provide for you? And yes, but does that become something we now presume upon? And now are we wrestling with professional clergy and and who's paying the bills of those in a full-time ministry. Remember, if I'm married to the ministry, I don't have strings attached to family responsibilities, but I also don't have strings attached to work responsibilities. And, well, that, those strings go in both directions, because work also pays me, so I can put food on my table. What do I do if I, if I cut those cords? And that's going to be an interesting issue. Paul will address it in chapter 9. And he starts by defending himself against people in Corinth who may be questioning 
I mean, these might be the ones that were shouting, I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, as opposed to those shouting, I am of Paul. The ones that were kind of against him, the ones that opted for someone else, might it be over issues like this? So, verse 1 and 2, Paul says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? There it is. Those are my credentials. I am a witness of the resurrection. I am a true apostle, one who is sent by the Lord. And in fact, if you, don't, if you doubt me, since you weren't there on the road to Damascus with me, fine. Are not ye my work in the Lord? You converts, you're the best evidence I've got of my apostolic call. You are the fruits of my labors. You are my work in the Lord. If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am to you. For the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. You should know that I've been sent because you accepted me and the message I was sent to deliver. You came to know the truth and the truth set you free. And I'm free as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ to do his work and his will. I know who I am. You know who I am too. Now verse 3, my answer to them that do examine me in this. So again, he's couching this in a bigger issue. He's framing it, I should say, with his own apostolic authority. But back to your specific question, you're examining me in this. And the this here has something to do with financial matters. Is it right for a full-time minister to receive financial assistance from the congregations they serve? And they're examining Paul over this issue. Now, Paul's response, have we not power to eat and to drink? So, yeah, we have the same temporal needs as everybody else. Apostles do get hungry on occasion, okay? Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles? And as the brethren of the Lord and Cephas, Cephas is Peter. Remember when Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law? Ah, that lets us know that Peter was married. And if other apostles can get married and have families too, then what would stop us from doing likewise? Now, now I chose not to. Remember we saw that in chapter 7. I'm a, most, Paul is most likely a widower. And he remained single after his wife's passing, so he could be married to the ministry instead. But still, that wouldn't stop him from getting remarried if he so cho chose. And if he did choose, then how am I going to feed my wife? If I were married like Peter, how would I care for my family? Or, as he says at the end of this, I only and Barnabas, have not we power to forbear working? Are we the exceptions to the rule? Should we have to work? to meet our own temporal needs. Now, this is going to be tricky because of what some of the things Paul says later on in this chapter, that he actually isn't imposing upon anyone. We saw this back in the book of Acts when he first comes to Corinth. And who does he meet? Aquila and Priscilla. And what do they do for a living? They're tent makers. And what had been Paul's occupation? Tent making. So what does he do? It's like, oh, wow, you guys have a business. You mind if I, you need a third hand? Uh, I'm, I'm qualified. And that way I can work to provide for myself. And I don't have to impose upon anyone here in Corinth. He's going to be there for a year and a half. Can you imagine? After a while, you, I mean, how many times does the calendar get passed through the Relief Society before the Relief Society starts, like, again? Didn't I just feed the missionaries last time? <laughs> well... Paul's wrestling with this. 
But the interesting thing here for us, I think there is a danger. Well, I'll put it this way. We have a lay ministry. And in my opinion, it is one of the most, it's one of the best kept secrets in the church as far as some of the secret for our success as, as, a, as, a, as a faith. Because it requires faith to give so much in our callings. And the fact that we can have boots on the ground in every congregation filled with true volunteers, true sacrificial saints, and a consecrating community ready to roll up our sleeves and just give. I'm amazed by that. It is so beautiful. I don't think we would be able to do as much as we do if we expected a full-time workforce to do everything. And honestly, in our case... One of the great things about a lay ministry is <laughs> eventually the mantle is going to fall on us and we get asked to do things I never would have asked and I never would have signed up for on my own. And as a result, it stretches me and helps me grow and gets me outside of myself. So many, there have been some callings. It's like, oh yeah, sign me up for that. I would want to do that anyway. But so many of my callings have been like, what, really? I have, okay. And the Lord helps me grow up in him as a result. Okay. It's like, you couldn't pay me enough to do that. But I will do it, despite the fact you're paying me nothing. Right? I mean, that, it's, it's a, a miracle. It's an, a beautiful, beautiful thing. But I also worry sometimes if two negative things come as a result. Okay? Uh, so here's, here's the two things I would caution us about. Number one is how we view other religions with their professional clergy. And do we automatically accuse them of priestcraft because we're get, they're getting paid for what they do. And I would, I would caution us about that. I think it's an occupational hazard of having a lay ministry, is you look down your nose at anyone that has a professional one. And part of the danger of that, well, I'll, I'll, I'll admit, there are some ministers that get filthy rich off of their congregations, and I would be concerned about priestcraft there. Some preach what they call the prosperity gospel. And hey, God wants us to get rich. Look at me. I'm doing his work and I'm doing his will and I have the wealth to prove it. That I am concerned about. But especially during my years at Divinity School, with the old <laughs> starving college student reality, and people coming to Divinity School to study for the ministry and get school loans to be able to do it and... I just want to go bless a congregation. I want to build God's kingdom. I want to serve him and my fellow man. And I want to be qualified to do it. I want to be educated. And that, that was noble of them. And I remember hearing some of their stories about meeting with oh, the elders of a congregation that they were hoping to be hired by. Or they were about to be ordained uh, in, in the ministry of a, a particular congregation or a particular religion, and they were talking about benefits and salary and so on, and not doing it in a way that they were money-grubbing. They weren't trying to... You understand what I'm trying to get at? These, are, these were good friends and good people, good souls that were wanting to give their lives over to the Lord but also had school loans to repay and had mouths to feed and a family to support. And, 
And not only that, they had a congregation to serve and that would cost money too. How am I going to pay my, my staff and youth ministers and people that worked with the little kids and music and all these other things? How am I going to keep the lights on at church? Because if they're the pastor, they're running it. I actually remember one conversation with a friend who had just left. I think he was going to become a Presbyterian minister. And he'd been meeting kind of with the board uh, or the elders of that church as they were ironing out details as far as the clerical salary was concerned. And you're just starting out as a new minister, fresh out of divinity school, and, and what salary would be, would, would be reasonable to both parties. And I remember in the conversation, he was talking about cell phone coverage. And he was asking the, the, the congregation, or the leaders of the congregation, would you pay for my cell phone plan? And they're like, oh, I, I don't know. That seems more like personal expense. And he said, okay, but does that mean you don't expect me to call the members of our congregation? Do you not want me to be accessible to them? Because I'm trying to strike a proper work-life balance. It, it's tricky when you serve the Lord and people just assume, well, if you're, you should be doing that 24-7, right? Uh, well, I, how, how's my wife going to feel about that? Again, those are those strings attached that we saw last week in chapter 7. And all those responsibilities, the, the, the trouble of the flesh, he called it. And wanting to serve without distraction. Well, these are good distractions. They're not distracting. These are real responsibilities. And if you want me to be accessible to the flock, then how are they supposed to call me? And should I be paying for that out of whatever salary you're giving me? Or is that part of the benefits that... It's kind of like company car. Do you want me to drive all over the parish to be able to meet the needs of people? Any other business, these would be normal conversations to have with your employer. Am I doing this on the clock? Uh, do we just expect every other profession to do all kinds of things pro bono? And yet we, as Latter-day Saints, because we do it pro bono in our callings, well, shouldn't everybody else? There actually is an incredible amount of volunteerism within other churches too. But if you're going to have somebody who does the work of the ministry full-time, then how are we expecting them to live when it's full time? Now, that, that leads to the second occupational hazard of having a lay ministry when it comes to judging payment. And that's not just how we judge other churches, but sometimes how we judge our own when it comes to general authorities and a living allowance that is allotted them. Sometimes I've had people, you could even say the same thing about full-time employees of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And full disclosure, I am one. I worked for BYU. And for the 24 years before that, I worked for the church in the church educational system. And I actually had some people over the years, not very often, but every once in a while, like, oh, you get paid to go run the seminary and institute program? Isn't that priestcraft? Can we be a little more careful before we jump to that conclusion? I'll define priestcraft with the help of Nephi in just a moment. But in the meantime, would you do what? Would you spend as much time in your calling as I spend on my profession? Are you prepared to give 40, 
50, 60 hours a week in your church calling. And again, there are certain things, whether it's physical facilities and building the buildings and supervising them and taking care of them all. Are we really going to have a volunteer in the ward that doesn't understand the process? Just kind of figure out how you're going to do it. Are we going to do that with education? And it's amazing how much of church education is on the back of volunteers. You early morning seminary teachers out there, you volunteer institute teachers, my hat's off to all of you. It's a relentless calling. I'm amazed at how much time you spend on it. But I am grateful also that there are paid professionals that administer all of those programs and give you, provide training for you and, and to take care of all the other issues so that you don't have to. You can focus on the kids in your class and teach them as beautifully as you do. You understand? Uh, in the temple, there is a temple presidency that serves out of the goodness of their hearts. They are called to do so, but it's a three-year calling. There are mission presidents and, and companions that, out of the goodness of their heart, go out and serve. But they're not expected to go buy a mission home. The church has that in place for them. They're not, in, now they're not responsible for doing everything in the missionary department. There are paid professionals who do that. There are paid professionals who help run the, the temple department and so on. And it's not priestcraft. It is, it is giving God all that they have, heart, might, mind, and strength, but in a full-time professional capacity. Because otherwise, you'd have to be rich enough to do all of that on your own and that would limit things to those that only have the means to do it. That also applies to general authorities. Those who are full-time servants of the Lord are given a modest living allowance so that they can continue to put food on their own table. They can continue to provide for their families. It is modest. In fact, when a friend was called from church education to become a general authority. He even shared with us, I will no longer complain. I've, throughout my career, we always kind of joke at how little we're paid because we're teachers. And teachers, whether public or private or religious, tend not to get paid a lot. That's okay. It keeps the mercenaries away. But as we joke sometimes about our life of obscurity and poverty as a religious educator, now that I'm a general authority, he said, and I'm living on a living allowance since I can't afford just to early retire and I still have bills to pay that I can't afford to pay otherwise. I didn't amass a fortune during my life of church education. But now that I'm living on the church's living allowance, I will no longer complain about how little, or I could say how much, church educators are given. That was an eye-opener for me. That was humbling for me to realize. And like I said, if we're asked, that's why missionaries serve for 18 months to 20, 18 to 24 months. That's why mission presidents and temple presidents serve for three years. It's short term, full time service. 
and they hope financially they can survive the experience. I saved up all through my teenage years to be able to serve full time and I came home penniless, <laughs> but grateful. And so if we're expecting anyone to be able to respond to a call to serve full time, long term, and think about apostles that, oh, <laughs> it's not a matter of hope you have enough for your retirement. It's hope you don't miss your retirement since you'll never get one. And you will keep working full time for the rest of your life. A, here's option A. Are we expecting them just to have amassed enough to be able to do it? Or B, are we expecting them to go get some part-time job? to be able to supplement their full-time free church service. Do you understand? Again, I don't want to belabor the point, but if you're one of those that struggles with that thought, either misjudging people of other faiths or misjudging people in our own faith that are given an allowance to live, then welcome to what Paul is trying to wrestle with here among the Corinthian saints. If they're accusing people of priestcraft, well, again, here's Nephi's definition. 2 Nephi, chapter 26, verse 29. Priestcrafts are that men preach and set themselves up for a light unto the world, that they may get gain and praise of the world, but they seek not the welfare of Zion. That's the definition of priestcraft. And it has more to do with why you do something than what you do. If you're doing this to be puffed up, to be seen of men, if it's for the gain and praise, if that's your own personal prosperity gospel, and it's my chance to get rich or get ahead or get known or get popular, that's not what prophets and apostles were after. They didn't seek their calling. They humbly accepted it when they came. And again, those who provide full-time employment for the church, it's not to be seen of man, and it's not to seek the gain and praise of the world. If it is, then yes, that's priestcraft but to be provided for. Just like missionaries who are being fed by the local members, every church employee is being fed by members as well, just through a paycheck. I, I hope that makes sense. I hope it doesn't come across as self-serving on my part. I, am, I, I, I try to be as sensitive as I possibly can to those kinds of concerns and possibilities not only for the safety of my own soul, but lest my brother should be offended. Okay? That is an occupational hazard of church, full-time church service or full-time church employment. Can we get back to the issue at hand, though? Wrestling with these issues, and yes, there are issues that others wrestle with, too. My, my, actually, the dean of the Divinity School, last thing I'll say, and then we're back to Corinthians, my, my divinity school dean actually wrote an entire book called The Almighty's Dollar. Not the Almighty Dollar, the Almighty's apostrophe S dollar. And it was a history of church finance in American religion. Fascinating read. As it's been a concern and struggle for clergy, men and women, for centuries. And how hard it is to be asking, to pass around the plate and to ask for donations of your, of your members, knowing that they're going to judge you for everything you buy. 
and and yet you're caught between a rock and a hard place because the kids need back to school clothing and my my can my wife have nothing that she wants because she's going to get judged by the other women in the in the congregation it's it's a tough thing okay so this is the issue that Paul is wrestling with in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 okay there's the context now he's going to explain himself verse 7 through 9 who goeth a warfare any time at his own charges in other words a fully volunteer army? Is that a thing? Uh, and not just volunteer, but would you go for free? Would you put your life on the line? Do, you, do we really expect every other profession to work pro bono for free? Do you want a pro bono army? How long is that going to last? How long are they going to keep fighting when there's family back home struggling and there's no food on the table? Okay. Let me give you another example. If military is one, how about farming? Who planteth a vineyard? and eateth not of the fruit thereof. See, in this case, I'm doing the work. It's bearing fruit. Am I not supposed to eat? Am I not allowed to? I mean, even the poor are allowed to glean in some other farmer's field. How about the farmer who owns the field, who works that field? Is he allowed to eat as well? Or who feedeth a flock, and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Oh, now we're getting closer, since these are good shepherds that are being sent forth to feed the flock of God. As that flock produces milk, can the, can the shepherd not eat or drink any of that? He says, say I these things as a man? Is this just me thinking out loud? Or saith not the law the same also? So forget me. Let's go to scripture, shall we? For it is written in the law of Moses, and here he quotes Deuteronomy 25.4, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen? I mean, think about that. According to the law of Moses, if your animal is out doing its work, are you going to muzzle it? Are you going to shut its mouth? Like, oh, how dare you eat in the fields that you're helping me plow? Oh, it's okay. All the work you're performing, you deserve to graze. I'm not asking my own animals to starve. Then how, how dare I ask a fellow laborer to starve? And yet, is that what you're asking or expecting of me? In verse 10, Or saith he it altogether for our sakes. For our sakes, no doubt, this is written. So that's why I'm pulling out chapter and verse here, because it really is for our sake that it's all been written down. I mean, this is a great principle true of all scripture. Liken it to yourself. And so that's what Paul is doing. I see that scripture. The ox can eat while he's working. Well, here I am, the Lord's oxen. Uh, here I am, heavy laden. I'm yoked together with him. And here I am pulling the plow. Well, if that's the case, and it's written for our sake, then here's my conclusion. He that ploweth should plow in hope. That he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? You see what he's getting at there? I actually love the phrase, if you're going to plow, then plow in hope. That's true across the board too. The work that you do, do you have an eye to its eventual result? When you plow, do you have faith in the harvest? Or do you have hope for it? Otherwise, I don't know why you're working so hard. If you're plowing, yes, plow in hope. And while you're plowing, well, if you get hungry, <laughs> glean a little. Eat as you go. 
It'll give you the strength to keep on plowing. And Paul was a workhorse. He plowed, and he plowed with hope. Do we really expect him not to eat some of the fruit of his labor? Now, that's the irony, though, because notice what he says next. If others be partakers of this power over you, in other words, you've provided for other teachers that have come calling here in Corinth, if others be partakers, are not we, rather? I am an apostle after all. I have seen Jesus Christ after all. All those things I said at the beginning of this chapter. Then why couldn't I be blessed and supported just like everyone else? But then this, and this is amazing. Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. And that's an amazing statement. Despite having this right, this power, he calls it, Paul didn't invoke it. He didn't use it. Paul hadn't been taking from the saints. Certainly not in a priestcraft sort of way. Certainly not in a prideful, let's get rich off of other people. This is not greed or graft on his part. But not even humbly or simply. He didn't pass around the, the calendar in the Relief Society. He didn't ask the saints to provide for him even though he knew he could have. There would be nothing wrong with that. And certainly other people who had come through Corinth had, had invoked that right and had been provided by others. For whatever reason, though, the saints are second-guessing Paul. And Paul is trying to defend himself. I could have with no problem, but I didn't. Maybe that was one of the ways he filled in that earlier blank. If taking financial aid from the congregation would cause my weak brother to be offended, then I will take no help as long as the world shall stand. As he put it here, I don't want to hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if someone is going to falsely accuse me of priestcraft. Even though I know better, I'm not going to get puffed up with that knowledge and start despising them for their misjudgment of me. No, I'm going to opt for charity because charity edifieth. And that's all I've ever tried to do here. That's why he worked right alongside Aquila and Priscilla, fashioning tents, even as he spread the tent of Zion lengthening cords, strengthening stakes, doing all he could to cover people and never asking them to cover him financially. That was incredibly self-sacrificial on his part. Talk about being married to the ministry. Uh, and, and any spare time he had was not to bear the responsibilities of his family. It was simply to put food on his own table so no one else had to. I'm amazed by Paul. This guy is as, as good as they come, not wanting to be in anyone's excuse for doubting his motives, for questioning his commitment. He's above board in all of those areas. But again, I could be asking for it, and there would be nothing wrong there. He gets back to that in verse 13 and 14. Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? That's how the priests put food on their tables. 
people would come with their sacrificial offerings. We already talked about that in, in light of the Babylonian barbecue. Okay, that, that Babylon's is the counterfeit. Israel's is the real thing. But that's how priests provide. They're not given any other kind of inheritance. How else are they going to provide for themselves? Okay, they live by those things. Another example. They which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. Same idea. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. You got it? Priests are permitted to eat some of the sacrificial offerings. People who serve full-time should be able to live full-time as well. But that's going to require support from other sources. Now, that we, we got to prove the contrary. We need to be humble in this. Because is there a potential for pride and priestcraft? Of course. So you have to guard against that. And that's what Paul is doing to an extreme. Okay? Anyone who does partake of that needs to be careful with that as well. We saw the example in 1 Samuel chapter 2, where speaking of priests living off the parts of the sacrificial offerings, Samuel's own sons were skimming too much off the top. Samuel's own sons were forcing people to give more than they was required of them. And they were taking parts of the sacrifice that was not right for them to have. And then they were threatening the people if they said anything against them. That is priestcraft. That is greed and graft. And, and that's something to be repented of. So Paul is trying to walk this fine line. And he's actually even erring on the side of those who are oversensitive to it. Okay? He then says in 15 and 16, But I have used none of these things. Again, I've avoided the whole issue. Neither have I written these things that it should be so done unto me. So not only have I not availed myself of this, this privilege in the past, but I'm not even writing this now to say I'm about to start. I'm, I'm not trying to guilt you or shame you into providing for me. I'll keep, I'll keep sowing tents. I'm fine with that. Okay? I just need you to understand the overarching principle in case someone else comes on board that, that would have a harder time doing this. Maybe some later apostle has a wife and kids and, know them, and they can't just sow tents part-time. And so please provide for them. But in Paul's case, I'm going to keep doing it this way. A full marriage to a full-time ministry and not asking anyone for assistance. In his case, he says, it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glory in void. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. And I love Paul for saying that. His greatest glory was to preach the gospel. He's the type that would have echoed Jesus when he said to the apostles of his day, my meat is to do the will of my Father in heaven who sent me. That's Paul's meat and drink too. It's what matters most to him. If I don't have food on my table, I'll die. Well, I'd rather put food on my table myself than ask you to do it if it's going to offend you, if it's going to hinder the work of God. I'd rather starve to death. <laughs> so that I can keep on preaching. You understand? My full-time work will be ministry, ministry, ministry. Woe be to me if I don't preach the gospel. 
This is what I do. So many of you have been so kind and just, I can't believe you spend so much time on these lessons. And to me, it's like, this is what I would do anyway. Woe be to me if I can't preach the gospel. And when COVID hit, I wasn't looking for some way to become known. Far be it. I was just trying to stay connected with my classes. I'm just trying to teach. And if I, if I can film lessons and post them, then a few hundred Institute kids could still learn the gospel. It went crazy from there because people like you are amazing. For you, it's woe if I cannot learn the gospel. For me, it's woe if I cannot teach the gospel. And I guess this has been a match made in heaven. Thank you for making this match. But to me, it's incredible to see Paul glorying in what matters most. And if anything I do gets in the way of that, then, then I'm going to get rid of that instead of getting rid of the gospel. You understand what he's saying here? It, it's profound. It makes me think of what Jesus had said about prideful people in his day. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? If you're praying to be seen of man, then God doesn't have to hear you. You already got your audience. If you're fasting or giving alms because you want people to think how amazing you are, then, well, I hope it worked because you got your reward. That's the way he always phrased it. You've received your reward. God doesn't have to bless you. You already got blessings from a lower source. You get it? And in some way, Paul feels that way, lives that way, that I want my rewards to only come in the form of blessing. I don't even want to have to second-guess my own motives. I want to steer clear of the whole thing for my sake and for your sakes. The only reward I will ever get will, count, will be a heavenly one. And that's all I need. Because I glory in my Jesus. And if receiving an earthly reward would lessen the glory I feel coming from him, just that godly gratitude for giving him my heart, my might, my mind, my strength. I don't want to do anything to lower that. So I'll provide for myself. And so he does. In verse 17 and 18, he says, For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. That's the heavenly one I was saying. But if it's against my will, and I don't mean that in terms of like, no, I don't want to do this, but it's, it's just because it's expected of me. Okay, It wasn't my choice. It was someone else's. They, they're kind of pushing me into this, and I have to do it. If that's the case, well, a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me. And by dispensation, we think of that in terms of, oh, the dispensations of, of Adam and Enoch or Noah or Moses or Abraham and so on. He's not putting it in those terms. Here, dispensation means more like responsibility or stewardship. I've been given a responsibility to the gospel. It's been committed unto me. I have a role to play. I have work to perform. I have to do it. Okay, Whether or not I want to, whether or not I signed up for this or asked for it, it's, it's on my shoulders. I'm bearing the mantle, and I've got to bear it off triumphant. I've got to do the work, okay? So I'm going to have to work one way or another. But in Paul's case, I just wanted to do it without being forced into it, without being pushed or told that I have to. 
I'm doing it willingly. And you can tell the proof I have is the fact that I'm not asking anyone for a penny to provide for me. This is all free of charge so that I could be free of second guesses, free of, of subtle insinuations or accusations that, I, that my heart's not in the right place. Paul asks the question, what is my reward then? Mm, good question. If it's not coming from man, then where's it coming from? And that's what we were, he was hinting at before. That glorying in God, the blessings that come from him for serving with heart, might, mind, and strength without ulterior motives. That's my reward. He says, verily, that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge that I abuse not my power in the gospel. No charge. <laughs> no charge at all. It's all free. Come, buy milk and honey without money, without price. Just take what I freely offer and accept it in the spirit that it is given. I, I don't want to ask for anything from you, Paul is saying. I don't want to abuse my power in the gospel. It's amazing how extra careful he's being. It actually reminds me of Alma. Because Alma knows he's dealing with someone like Korahor, this is Alma 30, and Korahor has already accused him. The only reason you're doing this is to get rich off these people. Interesting insinuation. Not even insinuation. Straight out accusation. You're guilty of priestcraft. And you don't believe in any of these things. That's the irony. Sometimes people, people who have left the church, this is a tragic irony, will accuse the brethren of getting rich off of our tithing, which again is like, no, do you not... Do you not know how low the living allowance is? Uh, and what retirement are they going to When are they going to be able to spend it on themselves since they can't retire, the apostles, right? Uh, no, nobody's getting rich off of any of this. Uh, but also when they accuse people who work for the church full-time, like, oh, the only reason they stay is out of financial considerations. Oh, they know better. They've already lost their faith. They don't believe in any of this stuff. But if they admitted it, they'd lose their job. I'm like, first of all, I'm sure I can get a job with you ex-Mormon, anti-Mormons. And you guys are making a killing. It's insane how much money is in the world of anti-Mormonism. And to see those getting wealthy, there's a whole website you can check out that, that reveals some of the income sources. And every time they post another video and ask you to contribute to their Patreon account and the ones that are labeled fundraisers and, and are interrupted by commercials repeatedly. Oh, be careful. Be careful. Paul is being careful. He is not wanting anyone to assume he's guilty of priestcraft. Alma did the same thing. And so when Korahor accuses him of doing all of these things just to get rich off of, off of people's donations. And not even donations, you require them to pay. How does Alma respond? I've never asked for a, a penny, in his case, a senine. Yes, I got paid when I was the chief judge. Because what, are you gonna be a governor for free? But I'm not getting paid as profit. 
The way he puts it, and I love this phrase, this is Alma chapter 30, verse 34. Having established the fact that he did all of this for free, he then asks the pointed question. And now, if we do not receive anything for our labors in the church, what doth it profit us to labor in the church, save it were to declare the truth, that we may have rejoicings in the joy of our brethren? That's beautiful. It's the only reason we do it. So that we can rejoice with one another. That's, the, that's my paycheck. <laughs> I just got an, an, a text or an email right before I sat down to film from someone I met in Idaho when I was up helping to train the missionaries. And two sweet sister missionaries said, we're teaching an amazing young adult. Uh, do you want to come on splits with us? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, bring it on. And we went and met this amazing young, young sister. And she just emailed me today saying, I finally decided to get baptized. Oh, payday. <laughs> payday for the sister missionaries that taught her. Payday for every good member of the church who set a good example. Payday for... <laughs> I'd already spent all day training the missionaries at a series of zone conferences. It was awesome. It was a long day. Uh, I hadn't worked that, like, quite like that since my own mission. And then the sisters said, hey, uh, can you come out with us tonight? And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, let's make a long day even longer. And I wasn't paid a penny for the firesides and the zone conferences or the training. Uh, I'm certainly not going to get paid. This, this is a full day of pro bono work, and it's, and it's going to end up being a 12 or 14 hour day. Well... I guess I did that every day on my mission. And this is just mission revisited, so yeah, bring it on. Well, that email this morning was more than, more than sufficient reward. That I can rejoice in the joy of a sister. That's beautiful. I, I sometimes wonder, those who are attacking the church and being paid handsomely for their efforts, are you so convinced that you keep doing all you're doing for free? You can often tell where someone's heart is if you remove any other ulterior motive and see, do you still have motive? And is it motive sufficient to keep doing what you're doing? Okay. Well, for Paul, he had all the motive he needed. It was to rejoice in the joy of his brethren. It was to glory in God. It was to build the kingdom. It was to keep making tents. <laughs> so I'll make tents for myself so I can keep making tents for God. I love the way he puts it in verse 19 through 22. This is such a powerful description of Paul as an apostle. For though I be free from all men, and no one can accuse me of, of skimming off of them. I'm, I'm free of any kind of responsibility. I don't owe them anything because they haven't given me anything. Okay? Though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all. I don't want you to feel like you owe me anything. I feel already like I owe you everything because I owe God everything. And he who changed me, I just want to rejoice in the joy of my brother. I just want to pass it forward and give it to everyone else. This is just like Alma the Younger. This is just like the sons of Mosiah. I'm free to go on my way and do my own thing, but I want to be a servant of all. I want to spend the rest of my life teaching Lamanites or building the church among the Nephites. I'm the servant. That was Paul. That I might gain the more. 
<laughs> not gain earthly rewards, gain heavenly ones, gain brothers and sisters in the, in the faith. So how did Paul go about his mission? This is powerful. Unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. Why do you think I always beelined it straight to the synagogue every time I went into a new city? I want my own people, and I'd quote Old Testament scripture and try to help them understand that I, as a Jew, have seen the Jewish Messiah. You can come, and, you can come unto him as well. But that was for the Jews. Next audience. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. So even those Jewish Christians that are still holding to Old Testament things, hey, I'm happy to hold right alongside you if it helps you tighten your grip on God. How about another group? To them that are without law, I became as without law. Being not without law to God, that is, but under the law to Christ. So yeah, you Gentiles, free of the law, oh, I'm happy to be a Gentile to you. I'll quote, instead of Old Testament scripture, how about Greek and Roman poets? I will be a spiritual chameleon in some ways. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. Not in terms of all the Romanish things of the world. But if I can become like you in any way, I will. If it helps me connect with you in a way that will end up helping you connect with Christ. This is Philip joining the Ethiopian in his chariot to be able to explain who Isaiah was prophesying of. This is missionaries learning the language and embracing the culture to become more relatable to the people they're trying to serve. The way Paul sums the whole issue up, he says, To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. That's all I want. I just want to bless people. I just want to become one with people. That, by the way, is the ultimate cure for priestcraft. Having already quoted 2 Nephi, that it's to set yourself up as a light. Well, how about lowering yourself so you can shine the light on everybody else? Or as Nephi said in the next verse, to overcome priestcraft, guess what the Lord did? He commanded charity. One, one cure for priestcraft is humility. I'm not, I'm not trying to be seen of man. I'm not doing this to, to get rich or get ahead or get popular. The other cure for, for priestcraft, according to Nephi, is charity. Do it because you love people. Do it because you love the Lord. And that describes Paul to a T. I will become them so that together we can become like Christ. In some ways, this is a mortal version of the divine condescension of Christ. That Christ was made mortal man in order to understand mortal men and women and help bring to pass our immortality and eternal life. He came down to our level to bring us up to his. And Paul is willing to come to the level of anyone around him. I'll be a Gentile with the, among the Gentiles. I'll be a Jew among the Jews. I'll be a Roman among the Romans. Remember, in the book of Acts, he speaks Greek to the Roman. He spoke Hebrew to the Jews. He, he's a little bit of everything. And to take advantage of all of those possible identities so that he could connect with people as a missionary and help turn them to Christ. So beautiful. Now, verse 23 and 24, this I do for the gospel's sake. So I'm, not, I'm still not doing it to be seen. I'm not trying to pat myself on the back here. I'm doing this, all of this for the gospel's sake. 
that I might be partaker thereof with you. There's love of God coupled with love of neighbor. There's rejoicing in the joy of his brethren. Alma and Paul just gave each other high fives. Okay, that's why we did it, isn't it? And then he says, again, describing how hard he's been working at this. Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? I mean, we all were lined up in, in unison at the starting blocks, but only one person crosses the line first. And I want to be that person. I want to give it all I've got. I want to bring everyone with me, but I will work as hard as any missionary ever has. The way he sums it up, so run that ye may obtain. That's, that's the spirit. Run to win. It's a race after all. So give it all you've got. Paul did. No wonder he says in verse 25 to 27, Every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. And that's interesting because on the one hand, it doesn't seem like Paul's been very temperate. He's been running in order to obtain. He is sprinting to the finish line. And yet his diligence is balanced by his temperance. Remember back when we studied Alma 38 in the Book of Mormon year? That was the counsel that Alma gave to his Oh, possibly overzealous son, Shiblon. I know you've got diligence. Hold on to it. But add temperance to balance it out. Okay? That's, that's going to be Paul. He's striving for the mastery, but he's also temperate. He knows how to stay in the Goldilocks zone here. Okay? And why? He doesn't want to overtrain to get to the point where he injures himself and then has to stop his training. So no, I've got I've to be wise. He says, now they do it, to obtain a corruptible crown. That's the laurel wreath given to the champion of the Olympics, okay? the, the winner of the race. But it's corruptible. Those leaves are going to fade. So why does Paul do it? Not for a corruptible crown. We and incorruptible. The glory of God never tarnishes. The joy we feel with fellow saints never fades. It's incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. I love these images. The ultimate athlete here that Paul is describing. And yes, Corinth had its, its games, just like Athens up the hill had their Olympics. He's going to run, and it's not uncertainly. He knows, he knows where the finish line is, and he is sprinting straight on through it. He fights and he fights to win. He's not beating the air. He's not just swinging his arms. No, I'm trying to win this thing. He says, I keep under my body. I keep it in control, that is. I bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. The last thing I want is to be cast off, even as I'm trying to save all the rest of you. I cannot afford to be a hypocrite and preach the gospel to you, but then not live it myself. That, that would make, make me a castaway, even though I'm the one preaching repentance. No, I'm trying to live above the board. I'm trying to live the principles of the gospel that I'm preaching. I'm running as fast as I can while still being temperate. <laughs> I'm trying to pace myself. I know it's hard to do because I am zealous. I just try not to be overzealous. I'm giving it all I've got. I'm not asking you to do anything I wouldn't do myself. I'm certainly not trying to impose upon your generosity or presume upon my own calling. 
Everything I do is to build the kingdom of God. My motives are pure. My love for you is sincere. My conversion is bone deep. I've been transformed by Christ. And I will waste and wear out my life in hopes that you'll join me. That's the fight I'm fighting. That's the race I'm running. And I'm running to win. I love Paul. Paul is... You get a sense, you get a glimpse of his personality. What's driving him. It's so powerful. He, he is a lesson worth learning from. His example in Scripture is so inspiring. And yet what's amazing to me, as he's already said, he has his own examples in Scripture that inspire him. All of these things are written for our sake, he said. Well, same is true of what he's writing himself. It's written for our sake too. But in chapter 10, he's going to go back to Old Testament Scripture and try to point his hearers in a better direction than the examples he's going to bring up. We usually go to Scripture to see what we should do. Sometimes it's worth going to Scripture to see what you shouldn't do. <laughs> Good examples. Well, here's some negative ones. And Paul is going to push this in chapter 10. Verse 1 through 4. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant. You guys were boasting about your knowledge back in chapter 8. Well, here in 10, let's keep working toward knowledge, shall we? <laughs> the best kind you could ask for. How that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in one cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, that last statement is amazing. He has just Christianized the Old Testament, <laughs> which some people accuse Latter-day Saints of doing. Uh, that we've, we've Mormonized Christianity. We've, in the Book of Mormon, we've Christianized Old Testament time period where Nephites are believing in Jesus before Jesus was even born. Well, yeah, they knew better. That's the gift of prophecy for you. Uh, prophets have it. Well, here for Paul, he's just christened the Old Testament in powerful ways where he's drawing these parallels and trying to explain this symbolism. Let's think about ancient Israel. At least the Jewish half of his audience is going to understand all of this. They were raised on these stories. So here's Israel going under the cloud. Remember, pillar of fire by night, cloud of smoke by day. And what is this cloud that covers you? Think about covering. That's the Old Testament word for atonement. And if there's a cloud that covers you, keeps the hot and harsh desert sun from beating down upon you, Ah, what might that represent? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. What are you thinking about with this cloud, you Israelite Christians? How about passing through the sea? Yes, literally that happened as the Red Sea parted and they went through. But talk about a miraculous immersion where we, they passed through the water in ways that were beyond, beyond mere mortal, beyond... What human ability? This, this was a miraculous passing. Well, imagine going through water yourself in miraculous ways. Coming out the other side, oh, not just wet, but completely changed. Sound a little like baptism? I, I love the parallels Paul is drawing here. He keeps going. What about manna from heaven? 
They were eating spiritual meat, spiritual food. The kind that meant to point them to God. Man shall not live by bread alone. They should live by every word that proceedeth forth from the mouth of God. That was a daily lesson provided by the manna. And if I'll keep my covenants and follow God's commands, he will always provide for me. And so he did. If that's the spiritual meat, what about the spiritual water? How about living water? And as soon as Moses struck the rock, the water came forth. Well, what does that rock represent? I'm amazed at how bold he is by the end. That rock was Christ. Not just, it represents him. I'm just drawing a parallel. No, that was him. Who provided for them? Who freed them from the bond of Egypt? Who got them through the Red Sea? Who brought them to the promised land? Who gave them manna every morning and provided living water to help them go through this desert on the way to a land that flowed with milk and honey? That was Christ. That was the Messiah. Jesus is the Jehovah of the Old Testament. I'm not Christianizing something that wasn't intended to be Christian. The Old Testament was Christian all along. It's amazing what Paul is saying there. This bread and water now become sacramental. Even thinking like we did when we studied the crucifixion, when Christ's side was pierced by the spear and out came blood and water, that the rock was smitten and water, living water, flowed forth. Paul understands it perfectly and is revealing that, opening their eyes, helping them see. He's going to build on that. Verse 5 through 7, But with many of them God was not well pleased. And here we start seeing the negative examples I, I mentioned earlier. This is what not to do in the Old Testament. Despite all that God gave them. Remember, this is, this is the whole message of Stephen before he was martyred. Where he goes through, walks them through all of Israelite history and then points out, you know, voila, at the end. That was Jesus. And just like they rejected him, so have you. And well, it didn't. they sure did. And they rejected Stephen as well and had him killed. But here, ancient Israel, what lessons are we supposed to learn? We're, we're learning that Jesus provided for them all along the way. But how did they respond? Well, just like so many of you who have rejected Christ, with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And we saw that repeatedly last year. All the murmuring, all of the problems that they faced, all of the suffering during their wander, wander, die, wander, die years. And as far as Paul is concerned, now these things were our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. Can we learn from them? Can we be better than they were? If, that, if murmuring and lusting is one problem, wanting to take more manna than what was provided, lusting after the Egyptian well, cucumbers and onions, or wanting quail because they're sick and tired of manna, can we learn from their mistakes? Can we be better than that? That's one example. Here's another. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, and here I'll quote chapter and verse for you, Exodus 32, 6. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. How's that for the golden calf? How's that for eat, drink, and be merry? You see what Paul's doing here? He's looking to the scriptures for examples. He's assembling his cloud of witnesses. 
and asking them, what did you guys do wrong that we can do better? How can we learn from your negative examples, not just your positive ones? And then he gives them a whole list, verse 8 through 10. Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day, three and 20,000. How about another one? Neither let us tempt Christ. Again, he is the God of the Old Testament. As some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. How about another one? Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. He's just walking you through Old Testament history, hoping that we'll be better than they were. By the way, notice he kept saying, some of them. That's wise on his part. They weren't all guilty. Let's not overgeneralize. There's plenty of other good examples of saints that were doing the right thing throughout all those years of wilderness wanderings. Paul is just pulling out the examples of the negative ones because he's seen negative examples around him in Corinth. We've got to be better than that. Can we learn from that? In some ways, that's what Mormon and Moroni were hoping for by the end of the Book of Mormon. The way Moroni puts it in Mormon 931, condemn me not because of my imperfection, neither my father because of his imperfection, neither them who have written before him. It's amazing he would acknowledge that. None of us have been perfect whether in Book of Mormon history or Old Testament history. We've all had our issues. If you've noticed them, kudos to you. Be grateful for that. This is what he says next. Give thanks unto God that he hath made manifest unto you our imperfection, that you may learn to be more wise than we have been. And that's what Paul is hoping for in his Old Testament review. Just briefly mention a few things. Can we learn to be wiser than they? Now, if so, notice verse 11 and 12. All these things happened unto them for examples. And if you look at the Greek word for that, it's typikos. That's where we get type and shadow. That's where we get something that is typical of something else. It's an example for us. They are written for our admonition. Can you picture all these Old Testament saints and sinners admonishing us? Please be better than we were. Upon whom the ends of the world are come, Paul says. And the Greek there is the ends of the ages. These are times to which all previous ages looked with anxious anticipation. The JST actually says it's us, not Paul's day. We're the ends of the ages. JST says they were written for our admonition also, and for an admonition for those upon whom the end of the world shall come. So that's us, far beyond Paul's day. But are we learning from these Old Testament Examples. Are we learning from New Testament and Book of Mormon and Doctrine and Covenants and everything else? Are we learning? Because they're trying to teach. They're trying to admonish us. So Paul's takeaway lesson from them all. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Now, how's that for beware of overconfidence? He didn't just say, if you're standing, careful. You never know when you might slip. No, he even cautions beyond that. If you think you're standing, kind of like what he started back in chapter 8, you think you know. Well, you don't know anything compared to what you'll someday know. At some, that's a, remember, that was the very beginning of chapter 8. You think you know. Someday you really will. Someday you'll have a better perspective. It will be a knowledge infused with charity, whereas right now all you have is knowledge that puffs you up. No, you'll, you'll grow up in God. You'll figure it out. You'll get to the atonement stage and stop judging people in creation and fall. You'll, you'll have charity to, to purify your knowledge. Here, similar caution. 
You think you know the Old Testament. Well, are you heeding its words of warning? You think you're in a better place than they were. That you some, oh, I never would have succumbed to a golden calf. I never would have committed idolatry or adultery in the wilderness like they did. I wouldn't wander, wander, die, wander, die. No, I would have gone straight in. Uh, that's, not what, that's not what Stephen said. You're just as bad as they are. It's not what Jesus said or Peter said. You persecute living prophets just like your ancestors persecuted past ones. So those of you who think you stand and pride is setting you up for some false sense of security, please take heed. Beware. Be careful. You might slip any second. And then one of the best verses in this whole chapter to help us avoid that kind, those kinds of slips and falls. He says in verse 13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge ye what I say. Okay? If you're wise, as wise as you claim, then please be wise enough to keep the commandments. You think you've got the knowledge. Well, do you have enough knowledge to know how to avoid temptation because it's swirling all around you? Are you ready to flee from idolatry? Remember last week when he said flee fornication? Here's the same verb. Get up and run, Joseph. Don't discuss things with Potiphar's wife. Get out of here. Fight or flight? I talked about fight. I'm not beating the air. I'm not swinging my fists. I'm connecting on every punch. I'm fighting hard. I'm running to win. But speaking of fighting and running, when it comes to adultery and idolatry, just run. Opt for flight over fight and get out as quickly as you can. That's real wisdom. That's wisdom that isn't puffed up, thinking you're better, and you can handle everything. That's what the ancient Israelites thought. And look at them. They fell, and the last words they uttered as they were falling was, please be wiser than we were. Please learn from our example. Paul did. Have we? Because when we... I, I worry sometimes, and I saw this often in seminary. I'd ask students to just... Look over verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 10 and summarize it. Tell me, give it to me in your own words. And they'd always miss the point a little. Because usually the way they'd summarize it is, oh, we'll never face a temptation we can't handle. Hmm, really? Do you believe that? Oh, well, I mean, it says it right there in Scripture, so it must be true, right? Okay. But if you'll never face a temptation you can't handle, then let me just ask the obvious question. Why have you sinned? Since, obviously, you could have handled it. How? That's one thing to read Scripture and sign off on it. It's another thing to go through personal experience and realize, does my life agree with that statement? Or has there ever been a time where I faced a temptation and I couldn't handle it? Not just in terms of the evidence that my own sin sadly gave me. But even in the moment as I realized, 
I, I, can't, I can't say no here. Think about sins of addiction. Think about times we were just too weak. Because that verse, is this adding insult to injury? Or is the Lord telling us something more than just some kind of cavalier? Go anywhere, do anything, uh, pagan parties and Babylonian barbecues and, and hang around with Potiphar's wife and, and stay right there alongside temptation because you'll always be able to handle it. No, that's pride going before the fall. That's thinking you stand when you're right about to slip. Okay? So don't come in so cavalierly and please do not misinterpret 1 Corinthians 10, 13 to give you some kind of, I'll always have a get out of jail free card. I'll never be in a situation I can't handle. Now we find ourselves in those situations all the time. But that's where the Lord, or where Paul is being more specific. Forget our, our shallow summary. Let's go with this verse, phrase by phrase. There hath no temptation taken you, he says at the first, but such as is common to man. That's the first thing we got to remember when it comes to temptation. It's common to man. I'm not the only one who's faced it. In fact, judging from the past, I'm not the only one who's fallen before it, who's succumbed to it. That's important to know because sometimes if we think that I'm the only one that faces this temptation and no one else understands how hard it is, then it does lull us into some false sense, not of security, but of justification. That I'm not going to be held quite as responsible since no one else has had to face something quite this hard. No, Paul removes that justification. If you've faced it, other people have too. Don't assume you're in some special class of, of the tempted that allows you to be some special class of the sinner who isn't held responsible for his sins. No. We've all been through things. And maybe I haven't faced that specific temptation, but I have faced temptation in general. Or there have been others who have faced that exact temptation. I actually remember uh, someone I home taught years ago. Good guy, but really struggled with a lot of addictive sins. And I remember one that he was, I could sense he was trying to justify himself about, because he said to me, Halverson, why are you even crying repentance? Why are you telling me I should resist this stuff? Easy for you to say is basically how it came across. Uh, because you live this oh, storybook life and you work for the church and everything's easy for you. And I remember we were close enough at the time I could say, wait, how, how dare you assume that the only reason I'm winning this fight is because it's not a fight for me. But I don't have to battle that kind of temptation. No, there is no temptation but such as is common to man. It's not that I'm outside the ring. It's that I'm fighting for my life and not just beating the air. Okay? If you see people living the gospel, assume, and I'm sure it'll be a, a correct assumption, they're fighting for it because they faced sin and temptation just like you have. First thing to realize. Second thing to realize, God is faithful. And that is such a reassuring promise that God will not leave me to my own devices, that he is with me and he's cheering me on. He's, 
in my corner of the ring. And he's trying to coach me through the whole thing. God is faithful. Okay? This is a verse to hold on to anytime we're faced with temptation. And I'm struggling, I'm being tempted, I, I worry that I'm about to fall. Maybe I did set myself up for failure because I, I thought I was going to be able to handle anything. I didn't learn from other people's examples. I thought I was an exception to the rule. I thought I was standing and stopped worrying about a potential fall. So number one, what do I do? I realize I'm not alone. I'm not the first. I won't be the last. This is stuff that everybody has to deal with. And since there are other people that have been strong, I can be strong too. There are other people that resist. I can resist. Number two, I've got to remember that God is faithful. That he hasn't left me. He's here with me and he's cheering me on. He's here to help. And how is that help made manifest? This is the part where our, our shallow summary does us a disservice. I'll never be tempted more than I can handle. No, notice how it's said. With that temptation, the one you're facing right now, the one that's getting bigger and bigger the longer you wait before you flee. With that temptation, he has also made a way for you to escape. That's how you'll be able to bear it. That's the flee verb, okay? That's the, here's the escape route, take it and run. You see, there's this sense, it's almost the opposite of how we summarize it. I'll never be face a temptation bigger than I can handle. No, it's, it's an admission, stick around long enough and the temptation will become bigger than you can handle. I can almost guarantee it. Stay, hang around with Potiphar's wife long enough as you try to explain why you can't do what she wants you to. And she'll end up overcoming your explanation. Oh, sin is incredibly persuasive, isn't it? So what do we do? In the moment of temptation, as I'm facing it, the Spirit starts pointing out escape routes. Flee fornication. Flee idolatry, as was said here. Like I said last week, walk out of the movie. Or the date's over, end it now. Or delete that app. Or change the subject. Or go for a walk. Or think about something different. Control your thoughts so they don't control you. There will always be a warning. Some internal light will flash. Some still small voice will whisper. The temptation's starting to grow. Now's the time to leave. And if you'll take my warning and hit the eject button, pull the escape lever, get out of the situation, then you won't sin because I've made a way for you to bear it. And the bearing is escaping. Okay? It's fleeing. I'm showing you the way and I'm giving you the time and now's the time. If you ignore that and stick around, and let that moment of escape come and go, then all bets are off. And chances are you will have succumbed to a sin that got too big for you to handle. Honestly, if we're humble enough and honest enough with ourselves, I'll bet we can, I'll bet we can recognize the escape route that we ignored. Think about the last sin that you committed that still haunts you a bit. One that was big enough to really prick your conscience after the fact. 
And if you can sit with that moment, if you can rewind the clock to when, when you committed the sin and be able to stomach the guilt that you feel as a result, then rewind the clock or rewind the video just a little more. And I can almost guarantee that if you have eyes to see, you will recognize the escape route when it was pointed out to you. You'll be able to think, oh, that's right. I felt a twinge of warning. You think you're standing. Take heed lest you fall. Flee fornication. End things. Don't go there. Please don't do this thing. And yet we ignored that. We missed the escape route. And we ended up succumbing to sin. One of my favorite quotes on this topic comes from Boyd K. Packer, although there's no record of him ever saying it. It was brought up by another general authority who learned it from Elder Packer. And I'm so glad he let us in on the secret. To be a fly on the wall between, in that conversation, between an apostle and a 70, and what did the apostle share? Such an amazing statement. According to Elder Kenneth Johnson, this is what President Boyd K. Packer taught. We cannot set off on a wrong course without first overruling a warning. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 13 at its essence. What was the warning? Take the escape route. I'm faithful. I've seen so many other people go through this exact same thing since temptation is common to man. And right now is the moment where it's about to grow bigger than you can handle. There's your warning. And if we missed it, if we ignored it, or even stronger verb here from Elder Packer, if we overruled it, probably with some false sense of pride, like I can handle it. No. That was Samson. Samson overruled all kinds of warnings. And it cost him everything. I pray it doesn't cost us the same. So flee, take the escape route. And then Paul puts the whole thing in such a profound perspective because he brings it back to Jesus. He brings it back to where he started this conversation. Paul is so good at zooming out and giving you big picture and framing it in eternal principles. He doesn't want to spend all of his time just correct, answering questions and correcting false doctrines and chewing you out for specific sins. No, he's trying to teach correct principles so that you can govern yourself. So let's step back away from pagan parties and talk about knowledge and charity. Let's step back away from this specific temptation you're dealing with and back up and see it in the light of the Lord. That you are covenant Israel and he's trying to get you out of bondage and into a promised land. Please be better than those who wandered and wandered and died. Let's go back to where we started this chapter and think about spiritual food. Manna from heaven and water from the rock, and that rock is Jesus. And what kind of food and drink has Christ provided for all of us that is meant to strengthen us spiritually so that we can run from temptation and so that we can repent of it if we stuck around too long. 
Notice verse 16 and 17. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? That's the water that came from the rock when it was smitten. Or how about bread? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? He uses the word communion both times there. And in other churches, that's the word they use for the sacrament. There's all kinds of terms. The Eucharist, for example. The La Santa Cena, the Holy Dinner, as it's said in Spanish. But communion is a beautiful description of the sacrament, bread, and water. Or wine, as is used in, other, in some other congregations or denominations. Communion with the blood of Christ. Communion with the body of Christ. As he puts it in the next verse, For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Paul is, is speaking sacramentally here. And even though for us, it's like, well, of course he is. We studied the sacrament when we read about the Last Supper in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. It, it's there. And yet, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John haven't been written yet, chronologically. Paul writes his letters before the, gospel, the evangelists write their gospels which makes this statement the first one we have on record about the sacrament of our Lord. It's, it's amazing that Paul gets the, the laurels for teaching us this doctrine before anyone else does. Here he's just hinting at it. It's the cup of blessing. It's the, the bread and it's communion communion to commune the way he puts it in that last verse many we're many but we can have one bread and come into one body this is e pluribus unum sacramental style this is out of many comes one and here we all are members of the church members of the body of christ but we come together in communion through his sacrament through the bread and the water. We're eating out of the same dish. We're, sit, we're dipping the sop with Jesus. We're at one with him. That's what the at-one-ment is. You understand what he's saying here? It's really powerful. When I've been to other churches, by the way, before you partake of the Eucharist or the communion, in most of them there is a, a moment called the passing of the peace. It's really a beautiful part of the ordinance for them. I didn't see it as one and the same. I just thought, okay, this is something you do. Then you do, they do the Eucharist. Then they do the sacrament. But if you think about it, two halves of the whole, it's really beautiful. There's a moment where the priest or the minister will say, would you mind standing up and turning to those that are nearby and shaking the hand or giving the, the hug, un abrazo, the, the kiss of peace? Will you pass the peace? And what's beautiful about it is it's just a moment where people stand up and turn around and shake the hand of the person next to them, give them a hug, and just, peace be unto you, they'll often say. Or may the Lord bless you. Or it's so good to see you. Or whatever they want to say. But sometimes it does, seems to be more sacramental language. And peace be unto you. And this passing of the peace is meant to connect each other horizontally in preparation to then partake of the sacrament, which will connect the whole community vertically to God. We're trying to become one with Him, but we're trying to become one with each other along the way. 
I honestly wish sometimes that we as Latter-day Saints passed the peace before we partook of the sacrament. And it's not just oh, to get socially connected. It's not just to welcome other people. So glad to see you here at church. No, there, it really is this sense of reconciling. Remember how Jesus taught it in the Sermon on the Mount? That if you're going to come to the altar and lay your gift, but then you realize there's something amiss between you and your brother, then leave the gift at the altar because you don't want to miss out on what you're really coming for. First commandment is still first. But then go out and solve your issues regarding the second commandment. Reconcile yourself to your brother. Pass the peace. Become one body in Christ. And then return to the body of Christ that you can partake of. You got it? It really is powerful, this, these emblems of the at-one-ment. And the horizontal and the vertical, and we're all coming together here. Remember, there were divisions in Corinth. And I'm for Paul, and I'm for Apollos. Or I'm rich, and I'm poor, and I'm Jewish, and I'm Gentile, and will we ever get along on this? Well, what did Jesus say right after the sacrament? And right before Gethsemane? In between those at one in Acts was the great intercessory prayer of John 17, where Jesus prayed for his followers to be one. I think he prays for that every time we partake of the sacrament. One with him and one with each other. It should be easy because if all sin has been eliminated, there's nothing to keep us from each other or from God. Okay? So here is Paul's testimony of the sacrament. He's going to teach more of it as he moves forward. Look at verse 18 through 20. Behold, Israel after the flesh, and that's why you've been teaching this Old Testament lesson from the start of this chapter. Are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? I mean, we saw guilt by association. This is almost innocence by association. I'm eating of the sacrifice. It's as if I'm partaking of the altar of sacrifice itself. Some translations, by the way, don't even just say they're partakers. It says they're fellow partakers. We're all becoming one here. We're all eating the same offering. It's all offered at the same altar. We're, we're all getting back to the same source of all of this. So what say I then, Paul asks, that the idol is anything? Or that which is offered and sacrificed to idols is anything? It's like, here, we're back to the Babylonian barbecue. That's, that's nothing, okay? That's not what this is all about. But I say... That the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. It's interesting that he's pulling this back into the conversation he started back in chapter 8. And while we're talking sacramental experiences, oh, yeah, I, maybe I laid to rest the Babylonian barbecue a little early. Um, one more reason why you probably shouldn't go. Forget how the Jerusalem Council weighed in on things. You think you know better. Fine. Let you be puffed up all you want. But number one, if it offends your brother, then don't do it. But speaking of brothers and being connected to them, there's already a way for you to do that. And it's through communion with Christ. It's not through pagan sacrifice. It's through divine sacrament. And it's that way we can have true fellowship with each other. Perhaps you wanting to fellowship at the pagan party is you're connecting with the wrong kinds of people. If it's for missionary work, fine, but mm, I worry about them converting you before you have a chance to convert them. So if you want real fellowship, don't do it with devils. Fellowship with the body of Christ.
the way he says it in verse 21, ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. This is like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount saying, ye cannot serve two masters. Or choose you this day, as Joshua said. Or how long halt ye between two opinions, as Elijah said. Or the valley of decisions, as Joel said. Make up your mind, people. Whose cup do you want to drink from? God's or the devil's? Whose table do you want to eat at? The Lord's or the adversary's? Choice is yours. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy, Paul asks? Are we stronger than he? I hope you know the answers to those rhetorical questions. Well, all things are lawful for me, you all say. Fine. But all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me. I know, you just said that. But all things edify not. Remember we saw the same back and forth last week? Saying the same thing? Both in that instance as well as in this one, the JST inserts the not. But the Greek didn't even need the not because it had the quotation marks. You say that you're allowed to do everything. I don't agree. I mean, technically, sure. It's not illegal. But if it doesn't help others, if it doesn't edify a brother in Christ, someone for whom Christ died, then please don't go there. Please don't justify yourself at your brother's expense. The way Paul puts it, let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth. And a better term for wealth is well-being. The JST switches it out for good. Don't, don't seek your own good. Seek someone else's. Put others first. Others over self. Think about that when you partake of the sacrament. Think about that when you're deciding which table to eat at and which cup to drink. Come to the sacrament altar and partake of that altar with fellow saints that are come laying their burdens down. Bear one another's burdens. Care for each other, including the weakest among you. We're all in this thing together. We need each other. So can we please become one? Paul's been teaching that from the beginning. But even there, he knows what the people are up against there in Corinth. So he says something in 25 that hopefully will be reassuring to people. He's trying to strike the balance here. He's trying to be a little of everything to every person so he can save them. Verse 25 through 27, Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, and that's a strange translation, King James, uh, the meat market is what the Greek says. The butcher shop, we could say. I mean, if we're going to have a Babylonian barbecue and there's, there's meat being sold all around, uh, even if you don't go to the party itself, there's still meat being sold at the marketplace. And maybe it's leftovers from the, from the Babylonian barbecue. I mean, we don't know where it came from. So do I need to, to follow it all the way to its source? Paul's answer to that is no. He says, whatsoever is sold in those places, that eat, asking no question for conscience sake. After all, he says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, what Paul is getting at here is, okay, if you, I, I, I've, been, I've warned you against the Babylonian barbecue. I've told you, let's just avoid that for all kinds of reasons. But what about the leftovers after the barbecue? And now it's being sold at the butcher shop or there in the marketplace. Do I have to... Source check? Do I have to 
trace it all the way back and see, okay, was this animal oh, raised on a sustainable farm and treated ethically from the very beginning? And I don't want to feel guilty for anyone else's misdeeds anywhere along the food chain. Uh, that's, that's a lot of work. And what Paul is saying here is, you're not responsible to do all that work. If you don't know where the food has come from, don't ask. <laughs> there, there's there's some, oh, some pragmatism here. There's a certain sense of don't ask questions, okay? Just uh, assume, I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt, give the meat the benefit of the doubt, and don't, don't ask questions about it, okay? He expands that in the next verse to include another possibility here. If any of them that believe not, so these are the, the pagans, these are the disbelievers, the, the non-Christians, if they bid you to a feast, and ye be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you, eat, asking no questions for conscience sake. In some ways, this is the ancient Christian equivalent of don't ask, don't tell, food style. Uh, you don't know where the food came from. Let's just assume it came from a good place. That's why he was saying, hey, originally the, earth's, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Uh, but if you source it all the way back, it came from God, okay? Uh, what happened in between? Eh, I don't know, and I don't want to know, okay? I'm not expecting you to find out every, every step. Just try not to offend believers by going to these things, but try not to offend disbelievers by checking everything they've done and where did that come from and has it ever passed through pagan hands and if you're being asked to go to the party and this isn't the full pagan party this isn't the whole community celebration but you have non-member friends that invite you over you don't have to ask every detail as far as how was the food food prepared I mean, sure, if they're pouring you a wine glass, yeah, don't drink that, okay? That's, that's clearly against the word of wisdom. You know better, okay? Your conscience is fully aware. But for conscience' sake here, don't ask the question on some questionable thing that yeah, just, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, you do the same for them. You got it? He then says in verse 28 through 30, But if any man say unto you, This is offered in sacrifice unto idols, Mm, so now I do know, okay? I, I didn't ask, but they did tell, and now it's totally clear that this is some kind of idolatrous offering. I'm just eating leftovers from Zeus. He didn't take his portion. Then what do I do now? Well, let's go back to what I taught in chapter 8. Eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, just like I said before. But since the circumstance is different, and now you have another party involved. And it's not just your conscience and you know better and it's not really idolatry. What about them then? Like I said, we're right back to chapter 8. So Paul says, conscience, I say, not thine own, but of the other. So whether or not it troubles your conscience, it might trouble theirs. And they're the one I'm worried about. Let's be sensitive to their sensitivities. But then it's like he reads our mind. And just like my kids would say, but I'm not supposed to care what people think. He's like, I know. I know what you're wondering. Why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? 
just like he said back in chapter 8, I'm, I'm free to do this and there, there's no guilt attached. Well, fine, but why use your liberty to offend someone else? Well, but why is my liberty being judged of someone else's conscience? It doesn't prick mine. Why, why do I have to care how it pricks theirs? Well, because they matter. They matter infinitely to God. And then he reads their minds again in the next line. For if I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that for which I give thanks? And with that, he's saying the same thing he said before about, well, my liberty, why are they judging me? I'm, I by grace can be a partaker. Why am I evil spoken of? Well, yeah, you have grace. And by the grace of God, you've come to know the truth. And the truth has set you free. The truth gives you that liberty you keep claiming. But not liberty to offend those around you. Grace hasn't freed you from sin just so that you can lead other people into it. Grace has introduced you to the one true God. But there's other people that are still struggling with the idolatry all around them. So let's not hurt their feelings. And let's certainly not justify ourselves in so doing based on our gracious Christian liberty. No, we've got to be better than that. We've got to be bigger than that for their sake. Okay? He then finishes this chapter in verse 31 through 33. Whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, Let's zoom out, let's see the big picture, and do all to the glory of God. Give none offense, neither to the Jews, who take all this seriously, nor to the Gentiles, who don't, nor to the church of God that is comprised of people from both of those other communities. Just be careful, okay? Don't give anyone offense. Don't give them a reason to justify their own misjudgment, their own falling into temptations that they can't handle, just be bigger and better than that. As he concludes, even as I please all men in all things, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Paul understands it beautifully. Paul will be a Jew to the Jews and a Gentile to the Gentiles. Paul will prove these contraries every chance that he gets. And based on the situation I find myself in, how might people misjudge my actions? Oh, if there's Jewish Christians looking on, I probably need to be a little more Jewish. If there's Gentile Christians looking on, maybe I need to be a little more Gentile. If I'm with the pagans, not that I'm going to lower my standard to the, when I know better. But if there's things that are questionable, maybe I'm not going to ask questions. And I'll just allow things to go when they're allowable. This is, this is tricky. It's am- I, one of the things I love about the letters of Paul is there's so many real situations with real people and members of the church trying to navigate life with people outside the church. Sound like our lives? One of the great things in the introduction to the Doctrine and Covenants is that these revelations came as real answers to real questions from real people in real situations. And that describes the letters of Paul as well. And so here's Paul, so far in all three chapters we've studied so far, and we're about to shift to the second half to study the next three chapters. But in every instance, it's boots on the ground. It's 
taking the temperature of the people, his finger on the pulse. He knows what they're dealing with, and they have legitimate questions. I don't know how to navigate this stuff. I don't know what I'm supposed to do in this situation. And Paul, help. And he does. I'm so grateful for his understanding, his empathy, his compassion for them. I, I'm grateful that he's spent so much time in Corinth and he knows exactly what it's like, uh, what life is like there on the ground. And here's Paul trying to delicately discern how best to navigate these sensitive issues. I'm grateful for prophets and apostles who do the same thing in our day. I'm grateful for those who trust in the foolishness of preaching and do the very best they can to convey the truth of God. We have modern Pauls among us and the principles they teach. If we'll simply have eyes to see and ears to hear, will help us govern ourselves, which is exactly what the Lord wants us to do. Now, as we turn to the second half of this week's lesson, in chapter 11, 12, and 13, 12 is pretty famous, 13 is world famous, 11 is more infamous, 11 is tricky. There are some things here, again, like, like, as I just said, Paul is trying to, boots on the ground, help people navigate. And how do we run things with people outside the faith? This chapter is more of a question, how do we run things within the faith? And particularly, male-female differences. And are there certain things that mm, we're supposed to be doing or not doing based on our gender? Now, chapter 11, we need to take with a grain of salt, because there are some eternal principles here. And that's what Paul was always trying to get at, remember? He's talking about specific situations, but he tends to zoom out and back up and give you the big picture principles to follow. He's going to give us some of those in chapter 11 too. But there's also some zoom in, and in this particular circumstance, here's the advice that I would give. But the other thing that we have to discern in this chapter particularly is what is eternal truth versus what is cultural construct. Uh, remember when Jesus helped people discern between the commandments of God and the traditions of men? Well, we're going to have to be discerning of that as we study chapter 11. We might even need to be more discerning than even Paul was in some particular issues. Because part of our challenge is we're fish that are blind to the water all around us. Sometimes we don't know ourselves what kinds of cultural constructs we should question. Because they don't seem like cultural constructs. It just seems like things as they really are. When really, those are just things that have always been that way. And they probably haven't even always been that way. Just in our lives and in our experience, this is what everybody does. And so, mm, isn't that how it's supposed to be? Think about that. Often people who are struggling in their faith will complain about issues that often end up just being cultural. And it's Latter-day Saint culture that you are pushing back against. And please continue. <laughs> Those are things that got to change. I sometimes will ask them when they bring up some kind of thing that they're concerned about or they don't like. I'll sometimes say, okay, granted, I see it too. But would you consider this a top-down problem or a bottom-up problem? What I mean by that, if it's a top-down problem, then that's the way the brethren want it. And it's, this is doctrine. This is commandment of God. And you just don't like that. Okay? Or is this a bottom-up problem? 
where it's more cultural and people just kind of treat each other that way or behave in those, in those ways. And the brethren are actually trying to change it. It's anything but a top-down problem. It's a bottom-up one that they're trying to fix. They see the same problem and they're pushing back against that culture just like we are, just like you're struggling with. Does that make sense? That often is helpful for people to go, okay, yeah, that's not how it's supposed to be. Unfortunately, it's just how it is. But we can work on that. We can change it. Okay? The brethren are trying to. Keep that in mind as you study chapter 11. Uh, and there's going to be some, some cultural construct that, that we're going to have to learn to navigate better than they did. Okay? Is that enough of an intro? Uh, chapter 11, verse 1, 2, and 3. Paul says, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. So keep that in mind as we go into the next conversation. Now I praise you, brethren, he says, that ye remember me in all things. I'm grateful for that. And keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. So these ordinances of baptism, ordinances of the sacraments, since he talked about that in chapter 10, keep them, hold on to them, follow me, because I've been following Christ through it all, okay? But, he continues, I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, careful here. This is one example of what I call a snicker scripture. And not snickers like the candy bar, snickers like a, a laugh that is oh, almost embarrassed that it's laughing. It feels like it's getting away with something. It's kind of a snarky little, script, uh, little snicker there in the corner, like, hey, <laughs> uh, it's, it's got some pride behind it. It's pointing a finger and it's, it's laughing in a scornful way. I call this a snicker scripture because way back in the day when I taught seminary, I would always ask my students, somebody praise, somebody pick a hymn, somebody give us a, a spiritual thought. Pick a scripture from your reading and share it with us to kind of get the ball rolling and get the juices flowing, and then we'll dive into the lesson from there. That was our devotional to start class. Well, nine times out of ten, and 95 times out of 100, a student would come up with a beautiful scripture that had been meaningful to them from their previous, previous night's study. And it really was a great way to invite the Spirit and get the lesson up and run it. But every once in a while, Occasionally, it was usually from a guy, sorry brethren, but you're guilty of this, it was usually a young man who would share what came to be known as a snicker scripture because they'd always snicker after they read it. And usually they'd just read it and then not give any commentary. They'd just kind of sneak back to their, to their seat with this smirk on their, on their face, snickering. And almost invariably, it was something from a letter of Paul that smacked of male superiority. It was some misogynistic text that some young man thought established their superiority over the sisters in class. Oh, come on, guys. Do you, do you, are you trying to avoid ever getting a date from a fellow student in seminary? Because you just lost all respect from the sisters among you. This was one of them, like, hey, the head of the woman is the man. And we'll see some more where Paul says some other things that are hard to understand because they seem so male chauvinistic at surface level. Now, for this one, 
let's calm down and slow down and be a little careful. What is he getting at with his idea that the head of every woman is the man? Because that's not all he said. He didn't say that in a vacuum. He also said that the head of every man is Christ and the head of Christ is God. And do we have a, a, a similar problem with every other statement? Probably not. The rest we're probably totally okay with. But that one we have a hard time with. Now we got to put it in context. And one of the things that the ancient philosophers were wrestling with, there in the Hellenized Roman Empire, was this, what's called the great chain of being. And the great chain of being was trying to establish some kind of hierarchy, some kind of totem pole of top to bottom, where does everything fit in society? I mean, you've got all these different cultures and you have slave and free and, and all these differences. And unfortunately, as human beings, we tend to taxonomize. We tend to organize and rank things. We're always coming up with top 10 lists left and right. Well, what's the top 10, lot, top 10 list of life forms on the planet? Hmm. Well, uh, as far as the ancients were concerned, we've got to put God at the top. And I don't know, do we put like minerals at the bottom? Uh, and where there's a whole food chain in the animal kingdom. And are we proclaiming some to be kings of beasts and others that are lesser organisms? Well, where do humans rank? Surely they rank above animals. Uh, but God's above them. Where do we put angels? Somewhere between? Oh, probably. And so this was kind of common top 10 lists in the ancient world. What's the great chain of being going to look like? And primarily... It was God at the top, and then angels, and then humans, but let's further subdivide, and male above female. And then we'll get to the animal kingdom. I mean, again, how are we going to fit slave and free? And when we cross different criteria, is a male slave higher or lower than a female free person? So what trumps the other? Is it gender or is it social status? I mean, it, it gets... You can get down into the weeds, but that's what people in the time period were trying to do. And sadly, I don't think we've outgrown it. We still are trying to rank in some kind of social hierarchy even in our day. But thankfully, we've overcome the thought that men are just flat out superior to women. That one we've outgrown, and thank heaven for that, okay? But I also wonder, even if we're under an, under an understanding like Paul seems to be, that no, men are supposed to be the head of the woman. If that's what you think, and we're going to come back to this on a bigger picture, but if that's what you think, which is what Paul thinks, then notice how he started the conversation. Be a follower of me, even as I am also a follower of Christ. That even as suggests the same kind of approach and a certain expectation on his part that if you follow me the way I follow God, or Christ in this case, then if I don't follow Christ, you're under no obligation to follow me. Now think about that. Sometimes what we term as the patriarchal order that puts man seemingly above woman, but also puts man below God, Think about that in terms of you only have to follow me if I follow the Lord. And if we put that in patriarchal terms, 
then does that also put the man between a rock and a hard place as far as the wife only has to follow the husband in as much as the husband follows the Lord? And the moment that the man, this is DNC 121. If we try to use, if we try to invoke the priesthood, uh, our, our position, our gender, whatever it might be, in some unkind or unchristlike way, if it's unrighteous dominion, then amen to the priesthood authority of that man. It's gone. You don't have a leg to stand on. And as a result, your spouse does not have to listen to you at all, since you're not listening to the Lord. Remember? In this case, Paul, you better be living well if you're some intermediary between God and the rest of the people. Now, let's take that and apply it to every male. And if every man is supposed to be the head of the woman, but Christ is the head of the man, then you better be following Christ. Or the, your wife doesn't have to follow you at all. Now again, that's assuming that there is that particular form of the chain of being. And is that the case? Now this is where it gets tricky, because in the proclamation to the world on the family, for example, which is, would be our most recent version of Scripture, if we can want to call it that, it does say that the man's role is to provide, preside, and protect. And ooh, preside can be a tricky word. But then again, in the same document, in the same proclamation, it also says that man and woman are supposed to work together as equal partners. And that based on individual circumstance, all kinds of changes can be made. Hmm. So keep that in mind. And how do we navigate this? Because we live in an age that really wants to prioritize equal partners, as we should. But we also seem to have a lot of historical background, not just as members of the church, but as members of the human race, that there is this gender hierarchy, and it's a patriarchy. And where's the equality in that? Well, a couple ways to navigate this. At the end of the day, actually, not at the end, at the beginning, at the beginning of the whole thing, way back in Genesis, if we go back to Scripture, which was written for our example, Paul already said that, how do we interpret Genesis? Now, if we misinterpret it, then it's really easy to establish a patriarchy from day one. Well, or day two, or whatever day it was when the fall took place. Because, oh, that's on Eve, right? And as part of Eve's curse, so-called, it was that her desire would be to her husband and that he would rule over her. Mm, there's the patriarchy. See, Eve, you asked for it. And it's been that way ever since. Now, that is one interpretation of that passage. But it's not the only interpretation. Nor is it the best interpretation. President Kimball at one point said, preside would be a better term than rule. So that's a good start, presiding. And as we know from throughout Scripture, presiding is not just calling the shots, especially based on things that President Ballard has taught about counseling in our councils. Presiding is the person who has the responsibility not to call the shots and then delegate, but rather coax out of everyone the, their particular puzzle piece. Remember the principle of scattered revelation, and everyone has a piece of the puzzle, but the presiding officer is responsible to get everyone to contribute their piece so that collectively we see the picture on the puzzle box. 
then everyone has buy-in. And it's not me delegating. It's everyone feeling a part to play and like, yeah, ready, break. Let's go do this thing. Okay? That's counseling in our councils. That's leading in the Lord's way. That's presiding. Okay? And if that's presiding in church setting, it should be presiding in a family setting as well. That if the, if the father is called to preside, then it has to be as equal partners. It's the father having the, the steering wheel, but the mother having the gas and the brake. Remember we talked about that in, in chapter 7 last week. That there has to be compromise and communication and, and connection here. There has to be a oneness. And so what does it mean for me to preside? It means I don't move forward until I find unanimity in the decisions that we, together, husband and wife, mother and father, are, are making. Okay? That actually is also best described in DNC 107, which describes the presiding quorums of the church in a really fascinating way that mirrors the proclamation of the world and the family when it comes to men and women. Here's the difference. It's a contrary to prove, and it's a tricky one. The presiding quorums, First Presidency, Quorum of the Twelve, and Quorums of the Seventy, are de described in Section 107 as being equal in authority. And that establishes a horizontal organizational chart because they're all on the same level. And, and yet that surprises us. But go read Section 107. I talked about it that, you know, for, at length in that lesson a couple years ago. Equal in authority. Which is nice because then you know that if the First Presidency dissolves at the death of a prophet, you haven't lost anything because the Quorum of the Twelve is equal in authority to the First Presidency. But wait a minute, it doesn't seem that way. It does seem like the First Presidency is above the Quorum of the Twelve. Well, in a way it is because also in Section 107, it says that the Quorum of the Twelve serves under the direction of the First Presidency and the Quorums of the Seventy serve under the direction of the Quorum of the Twelve. No, no, wait a minute. Now you've really confused me because that's a vertical organization chart. Yeah. So which one is it? Is it horizontal, equal in authority? Or is it vertical, under the direction of? And the Lord just smiles and says, yes. Figure that out. Figure out how you can balance hierarchy and equality. Good luck. It's going to take some... <laughs> some growing up in God, to figure that out. And in a similar way, if there is some kind of presiding, and there is, according to the proclamation, then make sure it's a presiding among equals. How does that look? Well, work it out in your own family. And again, individual circumstances will determine even what that presiding looks like in day-to-day -day situations. And some decisions, yeah, probably it ought to be the husband that presides over it. But other decisions, yeah, it probably ought to be the wife that presides over that one. But either way, it's got to be equal partners. And we come together in unanimity. That's Section 107 as well. Section 107 is my favorite place to see how that, those organization charts are supposed to come together. And to me, I apply it to the family every time. Because it's the same contrary to proof. It's the same dichotomy of vertical and horizontal, equality versus presiding and how that works. But the way decisions are made, and that's really when the rubber hits the road in terms of presiding. Most people don't care about who's in charge until a decision is made. 
Because then, oh, if we don't agree, then what, you're going to trump mine just because you're in, in charge? That's, that's where the injustice of it all see, and the inequality of it all seems to come to a head. But according to Section 107, how are our decisions made? Two requirements. Number one, it's got to be unanimous. How's that for equal in authority? How's that for the presiding officer not calling the shot, but rather coaxing out consensus? And number two, how on earth are you going to reach unanimity when we're coming from two different starting points? The second thing that Section 107 requires is Christ-like attributes. It's going to have to be done in the Lord's own way. Meekness, gentleness, love unfeigned is how Section 121 describes it. In 107, it's faith and knowledge and temperance and patience and brotherly kindness and charity. It's Christ-like attributes start to finish. And, and that will be required of both husband and wife, both male and female, both presider and presided over. But even over, I'm not sure, is the right preposition. <laughs> Presiding alongside, right? And again, that's just based on that. As, as we taught the book of Genesis last year, we also saw that from the Hebrew... He shall rule over thee is one accurate translation. But an equally accurate translation of the, of the Hebrew would be, and he shall preside with thee. Right alongside. Equal partners. You are help. She's a help meet for thee, after all. Which is not some helper, not some servant class. But a help, which only God uses to describe himself, Someone who is an enabling power, a source of grace, and that help is meet, corresponding, equal to. I don't have the time to rehash the entire lesson from, from Genesis and from section 107. Hopefully I've dropped enough hints and pointed you in those directions. But as we're trying to navigate Paul, and if Paul were alive today, he'd be right alongside President Nelson and President Oaks. Well, President Oaks, who gave that incredible talk about priesthood power of women, President, uh, President Nelson, who has spoken repeatedly for the importance of women to be equal partners in the home, in the church, in presiding councils, in everything that's done, pleading with the sisters to be more involved, active, vocal partners in every decision made, Paul would be right alongside them. Paul would be grateful for some of the cultural improvements that have taken us centuries to reach in, among, in the human race, not just in the church. Okay? Does that make sense? I've said it repeatedly. In the Gospels, Jesus always elevated women. And in some ways, for the last 2,000 years, culture has just tried to catch back up to Jesus. And, and we're getting closer in some ways. We seem to be falling further behind in others. But in terms of the equality of the genders, this is, this is progress. I hope that we don't overcorrect in our zeal to correct and just replace a patriarchy with a matriarchy and, and offset thousands of years of male dominance with, uh, what, another few thousand years of female dominance? 
you don't have to lift one at the other's expense. It's been done wrong for way too long, and I worry that we're doing it wrong to overcorrect it. Okay? This doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. This ought to be everyone wins together. Okay? Lift the whole boat. And that is what the Lord will do. Here in Paul, we've got to be careful. Okay? Because some of this is going to be cultural. We'll see more and more of that in the next few verses. But it all starts with this idea of the chain of being, the patriarchal order. But even in patriarchal order, it's equality, even if there's under the direction of. Okay? This is really tricky. This is hard. Wrestle with it. Go review section 107. Go review our study of Genesis and, and figure out with the Spirit's help how you're going to navigate it within your own family. Okay? Within your own ward. And then let's get to some purely cultural things in verse 4 through 6. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. Now, that should actually surprise us, since throughout most of Jewish history, it's been the opposite. I mean, that's why you wear the yarmulke. That's why you wear the, the kippah. It, that's why you pull up a, a prayer shawl over your head as you pray. The head should be covered. Now, is this... Swinging the, swinging the pendulum so far toward a, a Gentile world that, no, we've, we've reversed that, and now the man's head should not be covered when he prays or prophesies. Again, whether or not it's covered, is this a weightier matter, or is this something that doesn't matter at all? Well, at least at this point, it seems to matter to Paul. Okay, But again, we're struggling, is this cultural construct or eternal commandment? Is this a commandment of God or a tradition of man? And, and if it was a tradition before, have we overswung the pendulum and it's now a, we've replaced that tradition with another tradition, but it's still just a tradition? This is really confusing material here. Okay? In some ways, we, typically, we tend to skip it because it doesn't speak to our situation. But maybe it does in terms of, are there cultural constructs that I'm blind to, that I just assume are the way things have to be? Okay? Now, in this case, men, don't worry about covering your head. But keep reading, women, you better. He says, every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, ooh, that's a no-no, a cultural no-no, that is, it dishonoreth her head. And speaking of cultural constructs, let me connect it to another one. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. I mean, we're, we're seeing cultural constructs left and right here. Because how much hair you have, is that really something that God has, like, established? Uh, I mean, culturally, are there sometimes preferences for long hair or short hair? But is that just a cultural preference? Or is there really some kind of command from God, like, uh-oh, you shouldn't have... I mean, bobs are off, are off the table, right? It's, this, is, this, is, this is tricky. What Paul is saying is, evidently in his time period, it was shameful for women to have shaved heads, to have short hair. The, most of the artwork from that time period shows Roman women with longer hair, often braided and then wrapped around the head. But if that's the norm, then seeing anything out of the norm sure seems shameful. That's not how we do things. Well, okay, but is that, is this by divine decree? Or just this is out of the norm for our 
social setup, our current culture. Those things seem to change. Fads and fashions come and go, right? Left and right, often faster than we realize. But in Paul's case for this, he's linking it all to, oh yeah, I mean, everybody knows you, that women need to have long hair. And in the same way, everybody knows that women ought to cover their head. And is this where we get, in certain, certain cultures, a veil, for example, that is over women and not over men? And yet, if you, if you think hard about it and allow prophets and apostles to perform their revelatory work, can even that change to the point that things that were once considered, yes, you ought to wear a veil in these moments, actually, do we? To me, it's fascinating when prophets and apostles ask questions that perhaps they weren't asking before. And the Lord's like, oh yeah, I mean, I had no problem with you doing it before. There's hopefully some symbolism you were able to learn from that. But no, it's not things the way things absolutely have to be permanently. So no. If the packaging starts to interfere with the product, then change the packaging. Okay? If people are starting to read things into it in a negative way, then we got to change it because that's not what it's intended. It was never what was intended. Okay? I've talked about that in other issues as well. But here, I think there's a bigger issue in these verses. We get caught up over heads covered or uncovered and hair long or short. And yes, Paul was caught up in those things too. But did you catch what he said about men praying and prophesying? He has no problem with that. He's just wondering, should they be covered or not? And then in the same breath, he mentions women praying and prophesying. And then starts to question also, should it be covered or not? The, the question on his mind was about head coverings and hair lengths. What he never questioned was whether or not women should be praying and prophesying in church. That's amazing. I think we sometimes get caught up in the thick of thinner things and start worrying about that and what's he saying here when what he's also said is that, yeah, women pray. Yeah, women prophesy. These are spiritual gifts that God promises his daughters as much as his sons. Why do you think I took Chloe's letter so seriously? Why do you think I, I hung out with Priscilla and not just Aquila? Why do you think of all of our experiences with Phoebe and with Lydia and all these amazing sister saints. Pay attention to that. That's a bigger issue, honestly. In verse 7 through 11, he then gets to bigger issues still. Verse 7, for a man indeed ought not to cover his head. Okay, fine. You're still dwelling on that, Paul. Can we let it go? For as much as he is the image and glory of God, at least that's how they interpreted the symbolism of not having your head covered. The great thing about symbolism, and the frustrating thing about symbolism, is it can often be, you can use it to go in either direction. So let's cover the head to suggest the covering of the atonement, right? Or let's not cover the head because, hey, we're the image and glory of God, and so we want to be open to that. Meanwhile, he goes on, the woman is the glory of the man. And there's that, again, sense of this chain of being and who are we glorifying. He then says something that might sound offensive, but just keep reading. He'll reverse it later on. He says, For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. 
Now, I know some of you sisters are like, wait, 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 okay. Yeah, please do wait. He's going he's gonna to keep talking. He also says, neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. And again, I, I know that there's some, the hackles are raising, and for good reason. You see, the irony of both of those statements is that the opposite is also true. And give Paul a chance, he will admit that. But if we're just talking about Genesis, and if we're focused only on that initial husband and wife, then yes, you could say that the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man, because Eve came from Adam's rib, not vice versa. And yes, you could say that the woman was created for the man and not the man for the woman, but only if you focus on chronological order and the woman being created as an help meet for the husband. But again, in reality, the man was also created as an help meet for the wife. And that's what matters most in all of this. Because as Paul says in verse 11, nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. Finally, that's the key to the whole matter. That's equality without equivalence. That's the fact we need each other. That's equal partnership. Even if there is some kind of under the direction of some form of presiding, which again needs to be couple-specific and situation-specific, and still seeking unanimity through Christ-like attributes every step of the way. Okay? That's what it all boils down to. So if you were concerned about where Paul was starting, please hold on to where he ended. And in fact, if that's kind of the crescendo and the climax, on his way back down, he's going to reverse some of what he just said on the way up. Okay? And so, uh, allow for the whole conversation to unfold. Uh, before we see the decline, though, the other half, can I just pause on that great statement? Neither the man without the woman, or the woman without the man, in the Lord. As far as, again, if, if the rest of these verses confuse you, come back to, chapter, to verse 11 as home base, where th the dust settles and you're like, okay, I was really confused, but I get this one. And maybe you can build up some of that trust. Then you can kind of foray back out into those earlier verses and try again. And if it still frustrates you and gets you confused, it can rush back to verse 11. Okay, at the end of the day, I know that's true. How do I make sense of these other things if that's the overarching reality? Okay? That's the one we hold on to. That is eternal families. That is eternal increase. That is divine nature and growing up in God and participating with him in his work and his glory. That is, it is not good for man or woman to be alone. That's one flesh. That's in the Lord. Now, I had an interesting experience with this verse once, and I've mentioned this in other contexts, in other scriptures. But just briefly, it was an interfaith dialogue we were having, Latter-day Saint students and evangelical students. And usually I stay out of that and just talk with the pastors uh, so that the students can really have their experience with each other. But at one point, uh, a Latter-day Saint student raised their hand and was like, oh, help, please. And I came over and they were like, uh, how do we explain, I think, I think prove was their word, how do we prove that there's eternal families? Because they were quoting scripture about uh, in, in heaven, they're neither married nor given in marriage. Remember, we dealt with that whole thing back in, in Matthew. 
Well, I tried to explain to them what I explained to you when we navigated those verses in Matthew. But then at the end of the conversation, where they're like, okay, I get, okay, to the Sadducees, and they don't believe in resurrection, I guess that sort of makes sense. And I'm like, well, also, it, it, look at this verse in 1 Corinthians 11, 11. And I pointed to this verse and said, you see, that neither without the man, that neither is the man without the woman, nor the woman without the man in the Lord, that we really do need each other. And that's not just on earth, that's in heaven as well. We, uh, eternal beings and gender, eternal part of, our, of who we are, and we do need each other to become like our parents in heaven. I mean, this is some deep doctrine, uh, but this is, it's all right there. And it was really fascinating because one of the, I mean, the Latter-day Saints students were like, oh yeah, I remember that verse now, that's awesome. Yeah, in the Lord, we need each other, male and, and female. But the evangelical student was like, wait a minute, that's the verse where you get your doctrine of eternal families? Because Paul doesn't seem to be talking about the eternities in marriage in this context. It seems to be more at church. You need each other. And male and female, you can both pray, you can both prophesy. Uh, but yeah, you should be with one, one with each other in the Lord. So yeah, that's, that's the verse where you get eternal marriage. Now, the way he said it was an amazing wake-up call for me. Because I responded and said, oh, oh no, no, I'm, I'm sorry if I've mis, misled you. We do believe in eternal marriage. And we do believe that that verse hints at it, points toward it. But no, that's not the verse where we got the doctrine. It's not that Joseph Smith was reading 1 Corinthians 11, 11 one day and was like, wait a minute. You can't have one without the other. They're both needed in the Lord. Hey, we should create a doctrine about eternal marriage and make it last forever. No. And I said to this young man, if you want to understand eternal marriage, there's not enough in 1 Corinthians 11, 11 to recreate that doctrine, to restore it. No, for that, you'd have to go read section 131 of the Doctrine and Covenants and 132. You'd have to let Joseph Smith part the veil and reveal the Word of God from heaven. Thankfully, he did just that. But no, it's... As far as you and I arguing over 1 Corinthians 11, 11, that's just scriptural interpretation. And you have one way to interpret it, and we have a different way, and the real question is who has authority to interpret scripture at all? For us, we would say prophets do. And again, I'm grateful that prophets revealed the doctrine of eternal marriage. It was after the fact that we saw verses like this, and we're like, oh, I wonder if Paul understood that in the same way. Hmm, maybe that's one of the things he had in mind when he said it. But no, it's revelation to a modern prophet. Okay, That's what the restoration is for. But again, come back to Paul. See the glory of what he's saying here. And here, in the Lord, there is an equality of the sexes, of the genders. There is a oneness that is required. And an equal in authority as we both pray and both prophesy. As we are both help meets or I guess that we would say helps meet for one another. Okay? Hold on to that. And then let's come down the mountain on the other side, verse 12 through 16. For as the woman is of the man, and that's what I meant in the previous verse about Genesis. But now let's go from scripture, let's go from theology to biology, shall we? And ever after, from that moment forward, it was the reverse. So as the, man, as the woman is of the man, thank you, Genesis, even so is the man also by the woman. 
And yes, Eve can tell you all about that when it comes to Cain and Abel and any other sibling they had. Okay, so that, that's more like it. And hopefully every sister out there listening to this is like, it's about time, Paul. You, you lost me back in those earlier verses, but now thank you for giving us our due. That there's not a man on earth that didn't owe their existence to the woman that brought them into the world. Adam was the exception to the rule. Okay, so yes. Then the next, but all things of God. So no matter where we are, are we arguing over social status on earth when in reality the highest link in the entire great chain of being is God himself? Let's keep that in mind. Everything's under God. So he says, judge in yourselves. Here's a chance for you to weigh in and give me your own opinion. Judge in yourselves. Is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? I think in some ways he's even backing off from his earlier verse. It's almost like he's saying and making a statement. Maybe he caught himself like, wait, is that true? Should I be asking a question that I haven't asked? Have I just assumed that head covering, I mean, if we changed it for men, does it really matter for women? Hmm. I really do wonder if Paul is questioning himself in these verses because there, is, there does seem to be some shift here. So judge in yourselves. You guys be the, be the judges of this. Is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you? And so here he's invoking nature, the way things seem to naturally be. He's not invoking God here. It, it's, and honestly, it's unclear how nature even teaches this. So uh, Paul, be careful even with this invocation of nature, because what is more natural? Uh, culture is going to determine that in terms of what's normal at one time in one place versus what's normal somewhere or sometime else. But here's what he's asking. Wouldn't nature tell you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? Well, I guess some cultures would say yes. But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her. Isn't that what nature would say? Well, yeah, in, in some places at some times. I mean, her hair is given her for a covering. Well, yeah, but isn't man's hair covering? I don't know. What, what are you saying here, Paul? Well, he says, but if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. And that is another one of my home bases on this complicated topic. Like, hey, can we just not contend over these things? When he says we don't have a custom here, neither the churches of God, there's no custom there either. Hmm, is he admitting these are just customs? Is Paul saying more than he knows? Is he figuring it out as he goes? Is he wrestling with this and it's hard to erase on parchment? I don't know. But to me, what's fascinating as I wrestle with these verses is that underlying conclusion. Can, we've got to be careful with custom. We have to be really careful with contention. And so if knowledge puffeth up, Maybe even some of Paul's so-called knowledge, if it was just culturally based, careful about letting that puff up, even you, and not be open to the realization, which he seems to make by the end, maybe this is just a custom. And it's not a custom in the church I don't know. You guys just be the judge of that. But could you quit fighting, please? I got more important things to talk about. And that's what he's going to do in chapter 12 and chapter 13. Again, there's, 
I don't know if I'm doing this chapter justice, my friends. Uh, you may have to, again, rethink and reponder. Uh, I'm doing the best that I can. <laughs> and trying to honor Paul's divinity as an apostle, but also trying to recognize and admit Paul's humanity as a, as a person. And what I'm trying to discern through the Spirit what is cultural construct and tradition of man versus what is commandment of God and eternal truth unchanging. And honestly, one of the best ways to do that is to let time pass and to see what prophets and apostles continue to say on a subject. And I haven't heard many conference talks of late about hair length based on gender. I haven't heard much about that at all, but I've heard quite a bit about the equality of man and woman. I've heard a lot about the priesthood power of women and I've heard a lot, well, from our prophet, just last conference, about the need to overcome contention, no matter what. There's some important underlying and overarching principles throughout this entire discussion that we can hold on to. And that's one of them. Okay. You ready to move on? Or are you frustrated with me? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not omniscient in all of this. I'm doing the best I can. But let's beware of doubtful disputations, okay? Verse 17 through 19. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not. So I'm not giving you kudos on this. That ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. This goes back to the contentiousness he just chastised them for. I'm not praising you because you're fighting over these things. I mean, I'm doing the best I can to help you navigate this. I, I, don't, I don't know if I'm doing a very good job. And we would probably say, yeah, maybe you could have done better, <laughs> Paul. But I am trying to eliminate contention. Because you're coming together and making things worse instead of making things better. For first of all, he says, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you. And I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. I mean, interesting ending there. It's as if he's saying, well, I guess there have to be heresies if we're going to clarify truth. Thank you for bringing in your falsehood so that the, tr so that the truth could be much more easily discerned. But either way, it's this, it's this contention, this disputation, this division. We talked about that way back in chapter 1 with am I on Team Apollos or Team Paul or Team Cephas when we're all supposed to be on Team Christ? I, we're, not, we're not doing it the way we should. We're going about things in the wrong way because we're doing it through contention and contention is of the devil. Jesus made that crystal clear repeatedly. So Paul does seem to be calling them out. You come together, and it's not producing the kind of saints that it should. Your communion ah, is not getting you at one with each other or with God. I even wonder if Paul is scratching his head going, I wonder if it would be better if you guys just didn't come to church. If we were to pause uh, the process for a while and just go, nope, we're going to try to figure things out and so that we can come together and truly pass the peace and commune with each other in order to commune with God. Have you ever, this happened to me occasionally on the mission field, 
where you would try hard all week to get people to come to church. And on Sunday morning, you were praying for it and keeping your fingers crossed. You're hoping against hope. You show up to church and you're waiting at the doors and you're looking at the parking lot and just praying, willing your investigators to come. And then they don't. And you slink into the, into the, into the chapel and tail between legs and head bowed low. You're just devastated that everyone who said they'd come didn't. But then sacrament meeting starts and strange things are preached from the pulpit. And it, by the end of sacrament meeting, you're so glad your investigators didn't come. Again, have you ever experienced that? Hopefully not very often. But every once in a while, it's like, man, sacrament meeting was a train wreck today. And uh, good thing they didn't come. And I wonder here if Paul is like, guys, I'm not praising you for coming to church. Because when you come together, it doesn't make you better. It makes you worse. You just end up fighting over stuff. And you're fighting over gender issues. And you're fighting over coverings and hair lengths. And you're fighting over who's eating what and is it idolatrous and and which apostle was your favorite and you're suing each other over issue there's all kinds of problems here in Corinth and Paul is trying to lay them to rest and how's he going to do that notice what he gets back to in verse 20 and it's something he raised in a previous chapter but he's going to bring it up again here and no better time for it Verse 20, when ye come together, therefore, into one place. Coming together to church. Maybe you're meeting at Chloe's house, maybe somewhere else, but you are assembling this church of Christ in Corinth. Why are you doing it? He asks. He says, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. I mean, you say that's why. You're coming together for communion. But is that really the reason you've come together? It'd be interesting for us to really ponder. Why do I come to church? Is it to eat the Lord's Supper, or is it to do something different? The JST clarifies that that's why we should come. It says, is it not to eat the Lord's Supper? I mean, that's why we should be coming, isn't it? But then reality hits, and is that really why we've come? Or have we come to oh, pass around the local gossip? Is it, have we come to judge and misjudge one another? Is it, have we come to puff ourselves up with our superior knowledge and look down at other people? Is, have we come to church to create dividing lines instead of to become at one with each other and with God? I love that Paul is bringing them to the sacrament table, the Lord's Supper. I already pointed out that 1 Corinthians is the first time chronologically that the sacrament is brought up in Scripture. And thank you, Paul, for reaffirming its importance. To say it at one point now, to say it again, that we cannot turn the table of the Lord into the table of devils when it's the devil within us that is arguing over things and creating division. No, the sacrament is not meant for that. Communion is not meant for that. So what Paul says here on the subject of the sacrament, notice the problems that are taking place in the Corinth First Ward. You ha- you're not coming to eat the Lord's Supper. You're coming for other things. For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper. It's like you're cutting in line and fighting over the biggest portions and, and who gets pride of place. and Because then it wasn't just bread and wine. 
It wasn't the deacons passing through the, the congregation, these little trays. No, it was a full agape feast, they would call it. It was a charity meal. The Lord's Supper is what they're calling it. But if it's a supper, oh yeah, that's when we really start fighting on who gets in line and who gets the bigger portion. Remember that scene in Seven Brides for Seven Brothers where they just jump into the dinner table and, and act like, like animals. Well, hopefully it's not that bad around the, the Lord's table. But is there some of that? Deciding who gets to go first and where they're going to sit? I mean, if, the, if Christ's own apostles had argued over who got to sit on his left and on his right, remember that issue with James and John and their mother? Then... I doubt the Corinthian saints were above that themselves. So if they are taking before one another their own supper, to the point that this happens, next line, one is hungry and another is drunken. <laughs> Think about that. The, the poor soul that was last in line, that was lowest on the social totem pole, and therefore they were stuck in the back, they're left hungry because there's not enough for everyone. And why isn't there enough? Because somebody else in the front of the line who cut their way forward or just assumed, of course, I deserve the, the highest seat in the house. Remember, Jesus warned about that, too. Well, that person's drunken. I mean, they, they took as much wine as they wanted, not worried about anyone else in the back of the line that might not get any. Do you understand the problem here? Can you imagine if sacrament took place like that? that the deacons didn't distribute it, whoever just rushed to the sacrament table first could have as much as they wanted. Oh, yikes. Careful about the ones left hungry and the ones that go, come home drunk. Now what, Paul asks, if we're shocked by this, what? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? I and mean, if you're going to eat like that, do it at your own house, not the Lord's. Do it around your own table, not at the Lord's table. You can make your own table the table of devils, but the table of the Lord must be kept holy. He asks another pointed question. Or despise ye the church of God? Now don't even treat it like it's his house. You treat it as if it were your own. No respect here. No reverence here. No sense of the sacred. You are despising the church of God. And I don't even think that's place. I think that's people. Because ye are the church of God. People are. Do you not care for one another? Or do you shame them that have not, Paul asks. What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? And he's quick to answer his own question with an emphatic no. I praise you not. Paul, this is strong language. And you can sense a certain level of frustration on Paul's part. Am I supposed to be impressed with your callousness, your selfishness, your hardness of heart? Am I supposed to be just, wow, look at you and how amazing you are? Of course you deserve to be front of the line during the sacrament. No, there should be no line. We should all be equal in our sense of inadequacy before the Lord. If in some ways we shouldn't be rushing to the front of the line, we should be holding back at the back of the line, since all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If we know how little we are, we have no reason to come rushing forward. We should sit in the lowest seat, as Jesus taught, so he can come forward and say, oh no, please come, move higher. 
come sit alongside me. Okay? He then says in verse 23 and 24, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. So I've already taught you about this, but I'm going to bring it up again. And what was my original source from the Lord himself? And what was that teaching? Let me tell you. That the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Again, this is the first mention of the sacrament. Bread as body, wine as blood. All things done in remembrance of Christ. You Corinthian saints, when you come together to the Lord's table, do you not realize that we're headed to Gethsemane as soon as dinner's over? That the at one is soon going to become a possibility for us all. And that Jesus is breaking bread with all of us. He's dipping the sop and giving it to us all. I pray we don't lift up the heel against him. I pray we don't end up betraying him by the way we treat one another or mistreat them, as the case might be. Can we not pass the peace as we prepare for communion? Can we overcome our divisions and truly become one? Because that's the requirement of Zion. One heart, one mind. Are we getting there? The sacrament shows us how. In verse 25, after the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye, as oft as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. And what a powerful description of what the sacrament is supposed to do. To show the Lord's death? We are reenacting that. We are participating in it. We are walking with him from upper room to lower garden. We're following him through Caiaphas Palace and on to the Antonia Fortress. We're seeing him mocked and scourged and ultimately crucified. We're at the foot of the cross. We're seeing what Jesus did for us but we're also seeing what he did for everyone around us. That Christ died for them as much as he died for me. And so of course I can't be divisive. Of course I can't be contentious. Of course I'm not going to do anything to offend someone for whom Christ died. I've got to be better than that. I've got to be bigger than that. I have to be more Christ-like myself. I promised I would. At baptism... And I promise it all over again, every time I commemorate his death and the death of the old man in me. If I was baptized in his burial, there's Romans 6, if I was raised in resurrection to a newness of life, then the sacrament is supposed to remind me of the whole thing, to show the Lord's death, to remind me of my own to show the Lord's coming to life and my being raised alongside him. I've got to be better. 
better for him, better for each other. Every time we partake of the sacrament, we are renewing our commitment to the two great commandments. Love God, all heart, might, mind, and strength. Love neighbor, even as ourselves. The Corinthian saints have a long way to go to get there. And so do we. In verse 27, Wherefore, he says, Whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, and that seems to be what's been happening. You've come to get drunk. You've come to kick someone else out and be hungry at the back of the line. You've come and treated it as if it were your table instead of the Lord's. And that has to stop. If you come and partake unworthily, you shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now that's stark. You're guilty of the body and blood? Wait, well, if we're reenacting, if we're showing his death again every time we partake, which side of that death are you on? Are you recipients of his body and blood or are you causes of those sacrifices? Remember what Jesus had said, if you're not with me, you're against me. So think about that with the sacrament. Which side are you on? Are you the one driving the nails or raising the whip? Are you the ones washing your hands instead of letting the Lord wash your heart? We have to be on the receiving side of the sacrament, not the, not the causes of Christ's death. In a way, we're both. I get it. But are we coming humbly, broken heart, contrite spirit? Are we coming with a sense of the sacred? Are we coming worthily so that we can receive? No wonder Paul says, let a man examine himself. And we should be doing that every week as we prepare to partake of the sacrament. Self-assessment, self-examination. And once we've examined ourselves, what can we do next? So let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup in the right way, in the humble way, in the worthy way. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, Paul warns, Eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Think about that. Do you not get it? Do you not see? Do you not perceive? Do you not discern what lies before you? Look up at the sacrament table, and what is it? It is an altar. Look at bread and water trays underneath a cloth that now in some ways becomes the shroud of a body that's been laid there. We are at the tomb, and it's not empty yet. We have viewed, we have shown, we have participated in the Lord's death. Here we are, Joseph of Arimathea, or Mary and the other sisters. And we're seeing this. Are we examining ourselves? Are we clued in to what is taking place there on the Sabbath during the sacrament? And are we worthy to partake? There's such a balancing act between the worth of souls and the sanctity of the sacraments. We've talked about that repeatedly. And we need to approach the table humbly and worthily. Which doesn't mean flawlessly or perfectly. Otherwise, we wouldn't need the sacrament to begin with. But we need to come broken, knowing the Lord will fix us. We need to come contrite so that the Spirit can turn us into someone more like Christ. Transformed, not conformed, right? 
Paul then says in verse 30, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. And while he might be speaking literally, take this symbolically. And are there people in the church that are spiritually sleeping? And does it leave the rest of us spiritually weak or sickly? Are bad examples being set and sacrament not being taken seriously? For if we would judge ourselves, Paul says, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Which is a good thing to think about, too. If I could judge myself a little more carefully, then I wouldn't give other people anything to judge me about. They're, they wouldn't be concerned about hypocrisy on my part. Oh, no, I've already passed judgment on myself. I'm not judging others, and now you don't need to judge me. I've judged myself. I've seen where I'm falling short. I've examined myself. I'm discerning the table of the Lord carefully. And I know there's places where I need to make changes, and I'm making them. You don't have to pass judgment upon me. And in fact, the world doesn't have to chasten me. The Lord already has he does it in such a more gentle way, by the way. He helps us see where we've fallen short, but then he lifts us so that we can move forward. And then Paul ends the chapter. Verse 33 and 34, Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. Which is interesting. Just wait. Let someone else go first. Make sure everyone can eat together. Hang back. Tarry so that the slowest one among you can catch up. Go ahead, postpone the meat, so that everyone can get used to the milk and start letting their teeth come in. Hold yourself back. Don't rush forward. We're all in this thing together. And if any man hunger, well, let him eat at home. <laughs> so interesting, just the logistics here, and how practical Paul is in statements like this. Don't come... It's like, don't go to the store when you're hungry because you're going to buy all kinds of things that you shouldn't. If it's a, if it's a ward party uh, and you're worried about there being enough food for everybody, don't come hungry. Eat at home and then come and like, oh, wow, look at all the food. I'm okay with standing in the back of the line and make sure everyone else gets a full plate because I, I didn't come famished. <laughs> okay, Paul is very practical here. If any man hunger, let him eat at home. That ye come not together unto condemnation. You come to the ward party hangry, eh, there's going to be problems left and right. Okay, And then he says, and the rest will I set in order when I come. It's almost like, okay, this has been a tough chapter. I, I don't even know if, if I've been clear. Uh, I don't even know if I'm clear in my, in my own head about hair lengths and coverings and stuff like that. I'm crystal clear on contention. We've got to get rid of that. And I know the sacrament is all important. I know the equality of men and women. In, in some ways, I, I love the end here where it's this, I'll, let me keep working on it. You guys keep thinking about it. When I get there, I'll, I'll, keep, I'll get back to work and I'll set these things in order. But in the meantime, let's hold on to the things that we know are absolutely true. Equality of men and women. Both can pray and prophesy. We're all in this thing together. The sacrament is our source of sacredness. No contention. We've got to become one. Yeah, those I can hang my hat on. The rest I'll keep thinking about, and I've probably given you enough of a tongue lashing for now. Let, let's, let me rest, and then I'll give you the rest the next time I come. Are we okay with that? Now, he's not done with his letter, far from it. 
But in chapter 12 and 13, the last two chapters we have for this week, he's going to address some other issues. And some of them, yes, do grow out of the contentiousness that he just addressed. But notice what he says next. And I love the, the more positive approach here. Okay, there's, there's been some tongue lashing in chapter 11. There's going to be more principles of praise in chapter 12. So carrot or stick, they just got the stick. Now here's a carrot, hopefully urging them to move forward into a greater unity of the faith. Chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. Now concerning spiritual gifts, you're like, wait, wait, where did that come from? <laughs> like speaking of spiritual gifts, like, huh? You haven't spoken about that at all. Well, I am now. So concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. I don't want you to be left in the dark on this. You need to know what spiritual gifts are and what they're for. I'm going to give you a good list. And this is just the beginning. I actually laugh because when my kids were little, we didn't watch, we didn't have cable. They didn't watch TV. They'd watch movies and things like that, but they never watched commercials. And I didn't realize how much of TV watching ends up being commercial watching. But when Christmas would come around, I'm like, okay, hey, kids, what do you want? They had no clue. They're like, I don't know. What is there? And you're like, what? You don't even know what, what to want? And we'd have to like get the, we'd take them to the Toys R Us or we'd, we'd find some kind of ad from the newspaper. And they'd be flipping through the, 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 the toy section and they'd be like, oh, I mean, just like the eyes opened and the jaw dropped and like, wait, this, these are the possibilities? How come you never told me about this? It's like, well, this is part of the reason why. <laughs> but for spiritual gifts, Paul wants us to see the whole catalog. He wants, to, he wants us to know just how generous God is with his gifts because he wants to just, oh, open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing greater than we have room to receive, okay? I remember once struggling with a school board uh, about accommodations for children with mental health challenges and was asking this administrator, what kind of accommodations can you offer? And it's like they wouldn't tell me. They're like, well, there's certain things. I'm like, well, what option? I, I don't know. I've never been... I've never been through this before, and I don't know even what to ask for. And I, I remember saying to this administrator that for some, I was so frustrated by the end. I'm like, who, who do you work for? The, the parents of, and children that you're trying to educate? Or are you trying to, I don't know, save a buck and not help with people that are in serious need? I was so mad. But I, I remember saying to her as calmly as I could, because I know contentions of the devil, I said, I feel like I'm at a restaurant and you're my waitress and you have the menu and you won't share it with me. I don't know what I can order. Is there any way I could sneak a peek at the menu and just understand how do you help other families in similar circumstances? I'm a new, this is all new to me and I need help getting my child help. But that was a rough one she wouldn't show me the menu. And we were kind of left to our own devices trying to figure out how best to help our kids. And Paul doesn't want that to happen to the saints. He wants to show the menu. He wants to introduce them to the, to the entire catalog of the incredible gifts of God that he has reserved for the faithful. It's, it's an amazing list, and it's just the beginning of them. In fact, the Lord is so serious about not wanting us to be ignorant 
that not only does he speak of spiritual gifts in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 12, he does it in the Book of Mormon, in Moroni 10. Grand finale of the book, Spiritual Gifts. He does it for us in the Doctrine and Covenants, in section 46. To me, it's beautiful that pick any of those books of Scripture, and there will be a discussion of these things, because the Lord does not want us ignorant when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit. So Paul says, Ye know that ye were Gentiles, at least before your conversion, carried away unto these dumb idols, even as ye were led. And if you worshiped dumb idols, that's a God who cannot speak. Well, are you ready to speak with the God who speaks in return? Are you ready? I mean, in some ways, what he's saying here is, I know you're used to pagan deities that can't give you anything. They just ask and ask and ask, and you have to give and give and give. Well, with the God of Israel, oh, he's a God who gives. And so forget the dumb idols. Here is a generous and living God. Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaketh by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost, which is an odd insertion here. But perhaps some of that's been taking place. Maybe some people have said that Jesus is accursed. Well, that's, they're not talking through the Spirit. That is no spiritual gift that has manifest that to them. That's a false spirit. But since there's false gods and a true God, well, since there's false spirits, there's a true spirit too. And what will that true spirit, spirit say? That Jesus is the Christ. And what will that true God give? Oh, gifts of the Spirit so that you can come to know that truth for yourself and share that truth with others. So how's this for a list? Verse 4 through 7. Now there are diversities of gifts. In other words, an entire range, a huge spectrum all kinds of variety in the kinds of blessings God gives his children. But it's the same spirit, so same source behind them all. There are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. So different kinds of ministries, but we're all focused on the same service. It's the same master that we are ministering for. So differences of administration. I've sometimes thought of that, by the way, when a new bishopric is called, or a new state president, or a new president of the church. And it is a different administration. The way they administer the work of the Lord is different. And yet it's the same Lord behind it. And sometimes we need more of one thing, and sometimes we need more of something else, as we're trying to prove contraries and strike balances. And it's amazing to see different administrations administering differently. That's okay. It's the same Lord behind them. Next, there are diversities of operations. But again, it is the same God which worketh all in all. So operations, how are we running things? What are the effects of those operations? How is it operating on us? All different ways. There's a diversity of those things. I love that he starts his discussion here, allowing for an incredible diversity, but also a unity. There's a contrary to prove. Diversity of gifts, but unity of giver. And unity of purpose as well, because it's like he's the coach and he's passing out different positions for the team. Or he's the, the symphony conductor and wants to make sure that every instrument is covered. If we're going to become one in the faith and establish that kind of unity, then yes, there's going to, be have, there's going to have to be a diversity of administrations and operations and spiritual gifts to make sure we cover the whole spectrum. There's all kinds of needs in the kingdom of God, after all. 
Because as Paul puts it, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit withal. Or as other translations put it, it's for the common good. And that has to be kept in mind through the whole discussion. In fact, in section 46, the Lord is so adamant that they remember that fact, that it's meant for everyone else. It's not, these gifts cannot be self-serving. In some ways, I'm giving you a gift so that you can then give it to everyone else, and I'm giving their, them gifts so they can give it to everyone else as well, including you. This gift, we've talked about this before about kinking the hose, and God tends not to send much water through a kinked hose, because he's trying to get the water to the end of the row. So who am I to receive anything if I'm not willing to give it to everyone else? That's why he gave it to me in the first place. And like I said, section 46 is so adamant about us not forgetting that, that it's repeated six times in one short revelation. Here's the list. Section 46, verse 9, that all may be benefited. Verse 12, that all may be profited. Verse 16, to every man to profit. Or 18, that all may be taught. 26, for the benefit of the children of God. 29, that every member be profited. Is that enough? Or are we going to lose sight and start focusing on self? No. It's the same Lord. It's the same Spirit. It's the same purpose all the way through. And it's meant to bless everyone. That's what spiritual gifts are for. It's our chance to plead with the Lord, more used would I be. And if you'll simply give me a gift of the Spirit, it will be a gift for everyone. It will be leaven that leavens the lump. I promise. It's a gamble when God gives us anything, (laughs) because we might use it all on ourselves. It's a gamble to invite us to the sacrament table, because we might eat more than our fair share. It's a gamble to give us a spiritual gift, because... We might think it makes us better than others. When in reality, it's making us the servant of all, but giving us something to serve them with. It's beautiful, the gifts that he gives. And what are they? And this is just a preliminary list. Verse 8 through 10. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom. And I don't mean word of wisdom like what to eat and what not to eat. I just mean words of wisdom. Some people are just wise. They get it. They're the type of people you want to go for for advice. And they leave you wiser than they found you every single time. That's one gift. How about another one? To another, the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. And that's related to wisdom, but it's different. In some ways, wisdom is the the street smarts and knowledge is the book smarts. Wisdom takes knowledge and knows what to do with it. Okay, But I, I would love both. I want words of wisdom. I want words of knowledge. I need people in my life that can offer me either gift. And that's not not all. Next verse. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, diverse kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. And like I said, he could go on for hours on this list. There was actually a talk in conference years ago from Marvin J. Ashton of the Quorum of the Twelve, where he enumerated some of the lesser-known gifts, and it was a long list. It was beautifully eye-opening. But to even limit ourselves to the ones that Paul named here, 
Did you notice that sometimes they seem to come in pairs? I already mentioned the relationship between wisdom and knowledge. But think about tongues and interpretation of tongues where he ended. That, that's a great pair. And if one party, one party has the, or one person has the gift of tongues and the other, their conversation partner, has the gift of interpretation of tongues, ooh, match made in heaven. In Moroni 10 and Doctrine and Covenants 46, they link the faith to be healed and the faith to heal. And again, that's a match made in heaven. And if you are suffering and have the faith to be healed, imagine if you found someone with the faith to heal. Oh, miracles await. And then again, miracles is another one of those gifts as well. Discernment, prophesying, there's so many. And I love here when it's referred to as the gifts, plural, of healing, which suggests there's more kinds than one. Not just physical healing, but do you know people that have the gift of spiritual healing? Just soothe the troubled heart. Do you know people that have the gift of mental healing? Oh, I hope you have a therapist like that. Or emotional healing. Well, they just seem to come to earth wired for that kind of connection and help you make sense of what you find yourself in. And you always feel healed after speaking with them. We need more healers, by the way, that develop those kinds of spiritual gifts. In verse 11 through 13, he again puts into perspective what these gifts are for in the first place. But all these, all these gifts that I listed and all the ones that, that you could name beyond, all these worketh that one and the self same spirit. That one coach, that one symphony conductor, that one director of the play. We all have our part to play, but it's the same spirit that's organizing and directing the whole thing. And what's he doing? He's dividing to every man severally as he will. In other words, he's giving some to you and some to others, and, and you don't have theirs, but they don't have yours, and it's going to be different all the way throughout. There's the diversities of operations, the diversities of, of administrations. And then this beautiful analogy Paul draws from it. For as the body is one and has many members, I mean, I'm, I'm one person, but I've got all kinds of body parts, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body still. So also is Christ. And this is an example he's used in other letters and things we've already studied and things we'll study yet again. We've got to be one here because we're all part of the body of Christ. I'm just a body part, but he's the whole. For by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. Oh, there's that living water. There's that sacramental wine. You see, if we're all body parts, but all belong to the same body, then what does that mean? Well, we belong together. We belong, we're meant to be one. Earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians, earlier in this letter, Paul talked about the body being a temple. And so, yeah, we've got to use the best possible materials. Cedar and gold, right? Not plywood and plaster. In a way, the same metaphor is being used here for spiritual gifts, suggesting that we need to develop them as well as we possibly can. If you're call, called to be a guard, learn to shoot and dribble and pass. If you're called to be a forward, learn to rebound. If you're called to play the strings, 
and work on that finger dexterity. If you're called to play a woodwind, work on your breath control. You understand there's, there's so many different elements here, but how do we raise the whole body? Well, we work on our individual body part. We do the very best that we can. He's going to expand that. And again, division is what he was worried about in the previous chapter. So can you see how he's going to use this metaphor to push for unity? That's what he does in verse 14. For the body is not one member, but many. And once you realize that, the, the next part of the conversation makes sense. If the foot shall say, oh, because I'm not the hand, I'm not of the body. Is it right? Is it therefore not of the body? Of course not. If the ear shall say, ah, because I'm not the eye, I'm not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? No, don't take some complaining foot seriously. And you ear, shape up. You're just as much a body part as the eye is. Can you not see that? Well, of course you can't see it. You're not the eye. But can you hear that, please? <laughs> ah, if the whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? Think about it. We need every single one of you because you all perform different functions. I sometimes laugh about this as I joke along these lines with my students. It's like, can you picture the ear saying to the eye, I wish I was you? It's like, well, first of all, it can't because it's not the mouth. And second of all, it wouldn't do the eye any good anyway because it couldn't hear. The only thing that could hear the complaint of the ear is the ear itself. So yeah, I guess you're just complaining to yourself, aren't you? Then again, you can't even do it because you can't say anything to yourself because you're not the, the mouth. You just have to think it. Oh, wait, you can't do that either. You're not the, the brain. <laughs> and, and add, you know, on ad infinitum. It's, it's amazing to see every single part and what it's limited to. That it, that's the only function it can perform. And for anything to get done, it's going to have to collaborate with other body parts all along the way. So he says in verse 18 through 21, Now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body, as it hath pleased him. This reminds me of the allegory of the olive tree when the master is planting trees in the vineyard. And they're like, no, 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 you should have done it here. Or why would you plant it there? And what was the master's response? Counsel me not. I know what I'm doing. So if God gave you a gift and you're wondering what to do with it, or if he didn't give you a gift that you really thought you needed, if you're looking around enviously at those around you and feel like they're the ones that are the body parts that get all the attention, of course people want to hold on to their eyes more than their ears, or a hand seems to be so much more, has, has so much more dexterity than the foot does. Is that all I am? Oh, careful. God did it his way, according to his wisdom. It hath pleased him to do it that way. After all, if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body. And the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. <laughs> because like I said, they can't talk or hear anyway. You get it? We need each other. And that's what this whole thing boils down to. That's why we cannot afford to be divided. We're one body. Then again, we can't overswing the pendulum and overcorrect the problem and just become cookie cutter images of one another. 
because that <laughs> solves one problem by introducing the opposite. We need to prove the contraries of unity and diversity. We need to rejoice in our differences and our different gifts, but with the goal in mind of coming together to use them for one divine purpose. And God will be the orchestrator of all of that. It actually solves the mystery of Doctrine and Covenants 46. And I taught this back then, but in case it's been a while. The mystery of section 46 is why two seemingly separate revelations come together in the same, in the same voice. It's like, I mean, a lot of Doctrine and Covenants revelations are so short that you can t tell God isn't trying to save on postage. Uh, he's okay to send a revelation all of its own in a verse or two. And then if he's got a different subject, he'll send a separate revelation. That's fine. He has no problem with that. But what's interesting about section 46 is the question the saints had was not about spiritual gifts. It was about who should be allowed to come to church. And in a way, Paul is dealing with a similar issue here about who's coming and why are you coming? And is, are there dividing lines within the church? And who's rushing to the front of the line of the sacrament and so on? In section 46, the saints were leaning towards a closed community of visible saints. That, nope, only the worthy, only the elect can come. We're trying to keep wolves out of the flock, and we're not sure about your sheep's clothing. But in section 46, the Lord says, guys, you're doing it wrong. Let everybody come. I sometimes describe section 46 as the visitor's welcome revelation. You've seen those signs on the outside of our chapels, visitors welcome. Well, they're there because of what the Lord revealed in section 46. And I worry that, I, that the people who needed to read that sign were not the visitors that now feel welcome. It's the people inside that need to be welcoming those visitors. Okay? We're the ones that need to be a little more open to outsiders. And that's what section 46 makes clear. If they're non-members, let them come. If they're investigators, let them come. If they're members, but they're not worthy, mm, let them come. I mean, protect the sanctity of the sacrament, right? They, they shouldn't partake unworthily, but they should be allowed to come. Jesus taught the same thing in 3 Nephi, by the way. If they're not here, then how can we help them? If they're not worthy, but they're not here, they're probably going to stay unworthy. But if they're unworthy, but at least they're here, we can help them regain their worthiness. We can help them repent. We can minister unto them. So let them all come. I love that revelation. And it could have stopped right there in section 46. Nice little uh, seven or eight verses saying everybody should come to church. But he doesn't stop there. He then shifts without really shifting. And the whole rest of that revelation focuses on the gifts of the Spirit. With a similar list to what we saw here in 1 Corinthians 12 and similar principles being taught. But do you see why I love the fact it's one revelation instead of two? Because how does the Lord introduce spiritual gifts in a conversation on, well, on unity? In a conversation on letting everyone come. Why? Because everyone has a gift to give. God, after all, has given gifts to everyone. <laughs> so share amongst yourselves, would you? By giving everyone some, but not giving anyone all, where does that leave us? Needing each other. 
So no wonder the non-members need to be invited. No wonder the investigator should be welcomed. No wonder the unworthy, we still need you here. Because you have gifts. Gifts to contribute that I do not. You're a body part that I am not, and therefore you can do things I cannot do. So please come. The worst thing we could do is to amputate. I remember when my appendix was removed, and as soon as I got better from that, I had to go back in and get my gallbladder removed. I was joking with the surgeon. I'm like, couldn't you have taken two for the price of one? You were already in there. Could you have put like a, I don't know, a zipper opening so in case anything else needs to go, you can just unzip and reach in and pull it out? I'm like, what in the world are the appendix and the gallbladder supposed to be doing anyway? Now, this, our biology goes beyond Paul's understanding of it. But, but I remember when those were cut out, and I remember thinking, imagine my body parts having a conversation together. And all of a sudden, they've got a new neighbor down in there. I'm like, whoa, whoa, who are you? Like, oh, I've been over here forever, but who are you? Wait, wasn't there some guy between us? Gall, I can't remember his name. Do you remember what he did? And, and is there anyone here on the, the factory line that can do that? We, we need somebody to step up and do whatever that guy did, because he's not here anymore. I don't know if he's coming back to work. And I just remember thinking, that's got to be weird. And the body just has to step up in other areas because that one's missing. Imagine how much we have to step up because people are missing in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And if we could just help them return, if we could help them feel welcome, then they can lift where they stand. Because I can't stand everywhere. You understand? The analogy Paul uses is so perfect for this. We're all body parts. We need each other. The way he says it in verse 22 to 24 Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble. And that's what you prideful people are probably thinking about. Like, yeah, who needs them? Well, careful. They seem to be more feeble. Doesn't mean they really are. But they seem that way. But notice, they are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable. Again, shame on us for judging it that way. Upon these we bestow more abundant honor. And our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together. Kind of hammered things out and forged us in such a way that we need everything to fit together perfectly. Having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked. Oh, he's made it that way too. I sometimes think about that verse whenever I sprain my ankle. Or see someone else do the same. Because I think, man, ankle? You're kind of a weak body part. But the whole body is resting on you. Almost my entire body weight is banking on you being able to handle things. And when I'm cutting on the football field or trying to pivot in the basketball court, neither one of which I do very quickly anymore. But my, my ankles feel it. And I'm like, man, why are you so feeble? And I think, well, I guess I need to take better care of you. I'm going to need to spend more time strengthening you than perhaps some other body parts that just seem to handle things naturally. Maybe I'm going to have to tape you. I didn't tape most other body parts, but I taped my ankles every game. I bestowed upon them abundant honor, additional attention. I love that Paul, instead of racing to the sacrament table, 
and I'm going to get drunk and you're going to get hungry. It's no, you're, you might have come hungrier already. That's why I ate at home. So please, you go in front of me and don't even worry about if you've left anything for me. I'll be okay. You, this is me honoring those that need to be strengthened. This is me holding back and being charitable and edifying everyone else instead of being puffed up about myself. That's how we overcome division. That's how we overcome contention. That's how we build Zion and become truly one. That's what we're after. Because what's the goal? Verse 25 through 27. That there should be no schism in the body. And those are the dividing lines that are tearing the Corinthian church apart. But that the members should have the same care one for another. Can we be our brother's keeper? In fact, can we be our brother's brother or sister? Can we love each other as the Savior loved us? Because whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. There's e pluribus unum. There's oneness forged out of our, our differentness. There's unity coming out of diversity. And it's exactly what the Lord intends. He ends then, verse 28 through 31. God hath set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers. After that, miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, governments, diversities of tongues. He's given us the whole thing for our mutual benefit. Now, are all apostles... Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Have all the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And of course, the answer to all of those rhetorical questions is no. And it's okay that it's no, because somebody is going to do that. Someone will fill that role. Someone will have that gift. And as long as we come together, then collectively we will have it too. Other positions are needed. Other gifts are required. There's diversity, and we can rejoice in it. Our differences actually make us strong. So I don't need them all, but you know what? Maybe for the collective good, maybe I need more than I have. So what does Paul say? Covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. Now, I love the way chapter 12 ends. With an invitation to break one of the Ten Commandments? Are you kidding me? <laughs> well, notice he was very specific. He, Paul is going to let you break one of the ten, but it has to be the one he named. You don't get to pick the only one you're allowed to break. In fact, encouraged, commanded to break is the tenth. Thou shalt not covet. Well, now you're supposed to. But not coveting your neighbor's property, not coveting, coveting your neighbor's wife. No, it's coveting your neighbor's spiritual gifts. And coveting it so that you can be more useful in the kingdom. Not coveting it because, oh, look at all the respect they get because they perform miracles and I don't. They speak in tongues and little old me, what, what's my gift? It's, I'm of the more invisible body parts. They're the eye. I want to be an eye. Oh, why? Why? So everyone can see you? No. So that you can see. That's why you're supposed. That's what eyes are supposed to do. 
again, no wonder in the Doctrine and Covenants version, he repeats it six times. You better remember. He even says, seek earnestly the best gifts. Paul's language here is stronger. Covet earnestly. But in the Doctrine and Covenants, when you're seeking them, he also says, always remembering for what they are given. And then he repeats it six times just in case you were tempted to forget. <laughs> okay? That is the more used would I be. In that hymn, More Holiness Give Me, I sometimes joke with my students that it's the most, it's the greediest hymn in the hymn book. Because every line starts with more, more, give me more. But every one of those covetous statements is purified by the one line, more used would I be. And as long as that's why I'm seeking or coveting spiritual gifts, then that's a prayer that God wants to answer because you want to be more useful. You want to develop talents. This is section 82 of the Doctrine and Covenants, by the way. You want to develop talents so you have more to place in the Lord's storehouse to become the common property of the whole church. What's your ward missing? You think about this in terms of a team, if we go back to the sports analogy. And if our team is missing a certain trait, maybe I ought to start working on it instead of complaining to the coach that we don't have such and such. No, work on it yourself. And then you have something to contribute to the team. So if there is an attribute that is absent, if you find some kind of talent that is missing, be the solution instead of complaining about the problem and develop that attribute yourself. But notice how he ended that chapter. It doesn't seem like an ending. And remember, Paul isn't writing chapters. He's writing one long letter. And so the way he <laughs> transitions, that's a better, a better verb, talking about gifts of the Spirit, talking about the need for one another, talking about coveting earnestly the best ones, the ones that are most helpful to your community. He then says, yet show I unto you a more excellent way. So while you're out looking for the best gifts, can I tell you about the best one of all? Can I show you the most excellent way to seek gifts or to develop them or to work together with others? Can I purify your motives here? Can I bring everything into this? Is gonna, we're going to huddle up the team. We're going to gather the orchestra. We're calling all hands on deck because I'm going to show you the lens through which you're supposed to see everything I've said to this point. Are you ready for the more excellent way? If you are, turn to chapter 13, and Paul will preach about charity. Remember how chapter 8 started today. You're so grateful for your knowledge, but it's puffing you up. Oh, that's a poor use of a great gift. But if knowledge puffeth up, charity edifieth. And so to come together, every body part, how can it be fitly framed together? What's the connective tissue between every body part? Well, it's the ligaments of love. It's charity. That is the more excellent way. Let me explain it. Chapter 13, verse 1, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity, 
I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And that's not much to write home about after the symphony. <laughs> sounding brass. It didn't even sound very good. It seemed a little off key. Tinkling cymbals? No, I wanted a cymbal crash. And <laughs> it kind of crashed and burned instead. Why? Because you weren't playing for other people's benefit. You were playing for your own. And that's a pretty hollow sound. No, if you're going to speak, tongue of men, imagine that kind of worldly eloquence. And then tongue of angels. Maybe that's the, the gift of tongues he was describing before. Because Paul's going to come back to that in chapter 14, which we'll study next week. But why do you want it? Why are you developing these things? More used would I be, not more seen would I be. If pride is, if this is the pride of self-promotion, then forget it. Your, your sound is going to come off flat. But if you have charity, if you love the, the people in the audience, if you love the people you're speaking to, then there is such a power in your otherwise weak words. It's not sounding brass or tinkling cymbal. It really is the, the tongue of men and the angels. And even you, mere man, will be considered an angel by those who hear you. Because they'll know you love them. And that you're speaking to them for their benefit, not your own. In the next verse, Though I have the gift of prophecy, and we're back to those spiritual gifts we saw in the previous chapter. Maybe I have that one. Maybe that's the one he's given me. Or how about understanding all mysteries? That'd be incredible. All knowledge? Oh, I know you Corinthian saints would love that one since you're so focused on it. Let's say you have it all. Let's say you're omniscient. Or how about those that have all faith? Can you imagine that? So that you could remove mountains? Oh, talk about amazing players on the team. I want the prophet. I want the mover of mountains. <laughs> I want the one who can reveal mysteries and explain everything to my understanding. But then again, if you're doing all of that for your sake instead of mine, uh, if you don't have charity, then those other spiritual gifts don't do much. They're pretty hollow without charity infusing them. If I have all of those things and have not charity, I am nothing. You see what charity does to purify every other gift? It, it is the blood that flows throughout the body of Christ. That's what charity, that's the function charity performs. It brings life to every other body part and every other gift that they've been given. He builds on that in the next verse. Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned. I mean, how's that for the ultimate in self-sacrifice? I mean, martyr to the cause. But if I do all those things and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Because essentially, it profited you nothing. And that's what spiritual gifts are supposed to do. What I love about that last one, by the way, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, what do we call that? When we give to the poor. Don't, don't we call that charity? Oh, yeah, but that's charity as an act. What, oh, and, and maybe act in more ways than one. Not act in terms of something we do, but maybe act in terms of, oh, I'm just acting. That's not really who I am. 
I'm, I'm, I'm playing somebody, and I'm playing somebody charitable. But here's the act of charity. Fine. What about the attribute of charity that's supposed to be behind the act, motivating it, purifying it? I love that Paul sees this so clearly, that you can do charity without being charitable. And charity must be something that you have and that has you. Not merely something you do or I gave at the office or can I, can I just give something and then keep those poor at, at arm's length? No, charity is something different. This is like the Sermon on the Mount where by the end of chapter 5, be therefore perfect. He then says in chapter 6, now that you're perfect in actions, let's purify your motives and make sure you're not doing this to be seen of man. Let's work on your charity, shall we? And then he describes it in one of the most beautiful descriptions of what real charity is. And I'm grateful that we have this word because in many a modern translation, they just chalk it up to love. And love doesn't quite do charity justice because we use love for all kinds of things. Yes, I love my wife, but I also love pizza and those better be two different emotions. <laughs> so it's not mere love. It's got to be the pure love of Christ, something much more specific, a particular type of love. In fact, let's give it a whole new name. Let's call it charity. In Greek, it's agape. That's the highest and holiest form. And here's the description. Verse 4 through 7, an absolute masterpiece. If Paul wrote nothing else, I'd love him for this. Charity suffereth long. That shows just how forbearing charity is, how patient. Charity puts up with a lot, and it doesn't complain about it. Now think about this in terms of your own relationships. <laughs> you may be suffering, but are you long-suffering? <laughs> or do you make sure people know how long you've been suffering and how much you want it to end? No, charity suffereth long and is kind. That word, by the way, it's the only time in the entire New Testament where that Greek word appears. We see kindness mentioned a couple times in English, but this time it's coming from a very unique Greek word, which hints more at our service, that our kindness is made manifest in full service to other people. Its root word actually means suitable or useful or beneficial. It's gentle. It's pleasant. It's actually the word Jesus used, or a different form of it, in Matthew 11, where he talked about, my yoke is easy. And that easy is the root word behind the word that Paul uses here for being kind. Are you easy on each other? Are you serving one another? Are you putting them first? Or in Romans 2, when Paul says that the goodness of God leads us to repentance, that word goodness is also the root word for the word that Paul uses here as kind. Our, do we, God is kind. God is good. It's what makes me want to change. And charity is like that. Charity is that kind of kindness. What else is charity? Charity envieth not. And if it doesn't envy, then it's satisfied. It's content. It's not desperate. It's not high maintenance. It's not so concerned about those other things. No, it's, it's totally fine. I'm, I'm just content to sit here right alongside you. I don't need anything else but an object to love. 
a person to serve and to let lift. You don't have to do anything back to me. You don't have to, I'm not making any demands. I'm not envying something I don't have because I have everything. In fact, I have so much that I'm overflowing and pouring out upon anyone around me. That's charity, not envying. Or the next line, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. See, it's not full of itself the way knowledge can be. It's not self-centered. It's not proud or over-inflated. That's the Greek word that's used for that puffed up. It actually comes from a word meaning bellows. Picture the big bellows that you, you know, huff and puff and, and keep the fire burning. No, that's, that's not what charity is. It's not hollow like that. It's filled. It's, it's way more than hot air. I'll put it that way. What else is about charity? Paul says, it doth not behave itself unseemly, which means acting in an improper way. It's not indecent. It's not trying to get all eyes on itself because it, it's not even thinking about itself. It's thinking about others. That's what he says in the next line. It seeketh not her own. So it's not self-centered. It's not doing this for its own sake. It's not easily provoked either which means it doesn't get frustrated. It's, it's not exasperated with the people around it. It's more easygoing than that. It's calm. This kind of charity doesn't get its feathers ruffled. It will put up with you no matter what you've done or are doing. Because, again, he doesn't look at, charity doesn't look at you and think, why aren't you deserving of my love? No, it doesn't ask those kinds of questions. It just loves. That's all. Charity thinketh no evil. And the Greek of that suggests it doesn't keep account of wrongs. I love that. It's not keeping score. It's not holding it over the other person's head. It's not resentful. It's not, well, I was charitable to you last time. It's your turn to be charitable to me this time. No, it, it, there's no scoreboard. Just love. Charity rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Now, that one's interesting. Why, why would it rejoice in iniquity? Does anybody? Well, the wicked do, right? But is it true that sometimes the righteous rejoice in iniquity? I mean, not, it's not their own, but there's almost a sense of superiority because if someone else is wicked, then, oh yeah, that makes me look all the better myself. But no, charity doesn't compare or compete along those lines. He wants everyone to be as, as righteous as it is, as charitable as it is. It, charity rejoices in that truth. And beyond that, it beareth all things. Literally, that means to place it under a roof, to bear something. It covers it. It excuses the faults of others. It just bears it, puts up with it all. It believeth all things. This endless trust. No cynicism. Oh, I'm sure it's been burned repeatedly, but it still has faith in you. It believeth all things. It hopeth all things. I love people like that. Just expecting good things to come. Hope against hope. And finally, it endureth all things. Again, it puts up with a lot. <laughs> it perseveres. It never gives up on the other person. That kind of love will go through anything for you. That is the pure love of Christ. It's the kind of love that God made manifest when he sent his son. 
and the kind of love that Jesus made manifest in laying his life down for us, though we didn't deserve it. Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends, and even to call us friends when we haven't always treated him that way. I don't know of a better description of charity. No wonder when Moroni did his best, or excuse me, Mormon did his best to describe charity in Moroni chapter 7. No, Joseph Smith channeled Paul's words in his translation, but also added a powerful phrase unique to Mormon when he talked about blessed are those who are found possessed of it in the last day. And I love that he said, not just you're blessed if you possess charity. He said you're blessed if you are found possessed of charity. And though Mormon may not have meant it this way, when I think of something being possessed, I picture like, oh, I'm possessed. It's not me that's controlling things. Well, if it's charity that possesses you, then good. Because I couldn't possibly be this kind or this long-suffering. I couldn't possibly believe this much or hope this much or endure this much. But if I will come unto Christ, he will give me this gift. That's how Moroni 7 ends. It's a gift of charity. That's why chapter 13 is the grand finale of chapter 12 in 1 Corinthians. This is the more excellent way. It's the most excellent gift. And it is a gift that God bestows upon all those who diligently serve him. Because he knows they can be trusted with this gift. It will be a gift that keeps on giving. That gives the pure love of Christ to everyone around them, whether or not they deserve to be treated that way. In some ways, that's what Matthew 5 was ending with. Be therefore perfect was not sinless or flawless. It, in some ways, it was being perfectly loving because that's the context at the end. It's not being a publican that only loves those that love you, that only loves those that deserve to be loved. No. It's having rain fall on the just and unjust, the, sh the sun shining on people who want it and, and people who don't deserve it. You understand what charity, real charity is? That's the pure love of Christ, and it's so much more than any earthly kind of love. I mentioned before that it's, this is agape, and the beauty of the Greeks is they had multiple words for love. They did better than the English speakers. It's what they say about Eskimos describing snow, all kinds of different ways. For me, it's just it's white and it's cold, and, and I want to get out of it. <laughs> but for the Greeks, it's like, oh, you got to have more words than one for love. C.S. Lewis actually wrote a whole book on this called The Four Loves. And the four that Lewis lists is first, affection. The Greek word is storge. And that, we enjoy the familiar. I have an affection for that. I love that stuff. Take it up a notch and you have friendship. In Greek, that's philia. And that's this, you know what a friend is. It's this kinship over shared joys. And man, I love that guy or I love that girl. These are my best friends. That's more than mere affection. But it's not quite romantic love, which the Greeks labeled eros. That is a more passionate love that within the bounds the Lord has set is meant to be a procreative love. There's fireworks. And we love our husband or wife far beyond any ways that we would have affection for 
oh, things we enjoy, or friendship with people whose companionship we enjoy. But even eros is, falls infinitely short of agape, which is charity, which is the pure love of Christ. That is the high, highest and holiest form of love. It's God's love. It's Christ's love. And it has to become our love. Our love for God, our love from God, and the love that we feel toward one another. I was interested when love wins, hashtag love wins, became a rallying cry. Because rhetorically speaking, love does win. It's an ideograph, as the rhetorical scholars call it. A word with such cultural capital that if you can claim it to your side, it will prove your every point and win you every argument. But usually those words are very ill-defined. It's what gives you something to, to hold on to when people are like, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, you're not supposed to ask. You're just supposed to let this word win your argument. And love is one of the ultimate ideographs of our day. It does win every argument without even having to make the argument itself. Just call it love, and you can't say anything against it. And if, you, if I can make you seem unloving, then, oh, you are the, the social leper. I have branded you something, and there's no recovery from that. But I remember as people were fighting over what, who was loving and who was not, and the thought crossed my mind, yes, hashtag, hashtag loves win, love wins, but what kind of love are you referring to? Is it eros? Or is it storge? Or is it philia? It, because if it's eros, then yeah, you can get away with anything. Because if romantic love, if erotic love is supposed to win, then sure, there's no holds barred. Everything is allowed. But is that really the kind of love that's supposed to win? I don't think they meant charity. Though if they had, I would have agreed wholeheartedly. Hashtag charity wins. <laughs> you better believe it. That's actually what Paul says next in verse 8. Charity never faileth. And that's the first century New Testament equivalent of hashtag love wins. But the right kind of love. That is the motto of the Relief Society in our day. And it's charity never fails. It never gives up on people. It's constantly giving in the Lord's own way. And it's the only thing that really does win. It's the only thing that never fails. Paul gives you the other options. But whether there be prophecies, well, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Every other spiritual gift seems to have some kind of expiration date. Some, I don't know, short shelf life. Eventually, perhaps it's, it's done its work and it's no longer needed, but charity will always be needed. That's why God still has it and exercises it towards us, unworthy of it as we might be. So what does Paul say? But when that which is perfect is come, and that's this perfect love, that's the end of Matthew 5. That's not publican love. This is perfect charity. When that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. 
Well, that puts things in perspective, doesn't it? Every other gift is only partial and preliminary. Those are lower rungs on the ladder. And if we're growing up to God, if we are progressing grace for grace and then receiving or progressing from grace to grace until we receive a fullness, then what's the highest grace we can receive? It's the grace made manifest in charity. It's the gracious and pure love of Christ. That's perfect. Everything else is just in part and will ultimately be done away. That's why that's the one we have to covet earnestly. It's the one we have to work toward. It's the one we have to serve toward. Because remember, it's not something we will develop on our own. It will be given as a gift from God. I remember at one point my wife was going through some hard things and just lamented that because I'm connected to her, I was going through hard things too. And she just wished in her own charity that she could save me from it. Well, that was charitable on her part, but it, I have charity of my own as well. And I said to her, honey, I'm not going to cut and run. I even said, if a, even a worldly wedding signs up for richer and poorer and sickness, not just health, if a worldly wedding can handle that, then a covenant, eternal marriage better be built on stronger stuff than that. I'm in this for the duration, and the duration is eternity. And so if you suffer, then I will suffer long, right alongside you. If you are bearing it, I will bear it too. You're enduring me. <laughs> Together we can endure this. And so we are. I am grateful for the gift of charity. I need more of it. For everyone's sake around me. We all do. So may we seek earnestly. May we covet earnestly this greatest of all good gifts. The, mo the most excellent way. Like I said, that's what we need to grow up into. And that's what Paul hints as he ends. Verse 11. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. You could even say I loved as a child with one of those other Greek words for it. I hadn't quite grown up in God to the point of true, true charity. But I'm getting there. At least I need to be. He said, when I became a man, we could say when I became perfect, that thing off on the distant horizon, when I matured and became fully developed, when I became a man, I put away childish things. And if true charity is, is perfection, if it's fully growing up in God, then what are the childish things? Anything that falls short of that. The childish things are vaunting yourself. The childish things are envying one another. Childish things are seeking your own or being provoked or not being kind. Can we grow out of those things? Can we put away childish things? For now, Paul says, we see through a glass, darkly. And that glass is actually meant to be a mirror. But they didn't make mirrors in the old days as well as they do in ours. 
It was largely opaque. It was hard to see through. It's hard to know exactly what I'm looking at. I mean, I know I'm looking at myself. I can see the, the, the faint outline. But really seeing myself eye to eye, knowing what I'm looking at, yeah, there's a lot of change I need to do. There's a lot of cleaning of the mirror. It's adding light to clarify this darkness. Only then will I be able to truly see God's image in my countenance. So far, it's just this vague reflection. I think I'm a little like him. I, I suppose I was made to be like him. I am a child of God after all. But just a child, or am I growing up? Growing up to be like him, as Paul puts it, progressing beyond this dark glass, then we'll be able to see face to face. There's no more mirror needed. We'll be looking into the face of God and seeing ourselves, our truest, highest, holiest self. I in him, he in me. Now, Paul says, I know in part. That's it. But then shall I know even as also I am known. That's the face-to-face. That's seeing yourself reflected in the eyes of God. And then he closes. Now abideth faith, hope, charity. These three. But the greatest of these is charity. That is truly the best one of all. The most excellent way. That's our end goal, to be so transformed by Christ that we can love in his perfect, selfless way. Ready for the journey? Do we Corinthian saints feel a twinge of, I've got to be better than I am. I've got to be kinder to one another. No more division, no more contention. I don't care how long your hair is or how short. I don't, I'm, I'm, I don't care about what I think I know or what I feel justified in doing. No, I just want to be nicer. I just want to be kinder. I want to be more loving. I want to inspire you to be more like Christ because of my own Christ-like nature. I don't want to shame you into anything or send you on a guilt trip. No. I want to live better. I want to be better for your sake and not just for mine. Paul's call to charity is truly inspiring. It makes me want to be more like Jesus, who personified all of these things. In fact, if charity is the pure love of Christ, then Christ is charity. Which means you can substitute his name for every time that attribute of his is mentioned. In fact, do that. Reread verses 4 through 7. And who are we talking about? Instead of what are we talking about? Let's embody this attribute. Let's personify it. And rejoice in the fact that Christ suffereth long. And is kind. That Christ envieth not. No wonder he could give himself so fully. That Christ vaunteth not himself and was never puffed up. That Jesus doth not behave himself unseemly. That Jesus seeketh not his own, 
that Jesus is not easily provoked, no matter how many times I've done things that would provoke him. No, Jesus thinketh no evil. He rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. More than anyone else who's ever lived, Jesus Christ beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. And he did all of that for us out of his perfect, divine, infinite love. I bear witness of that love because I felt it. I felt it for me from him. But perhaps even more miraculously, at times I've felt it for others from him, through him. To get a sense of how God feels about people is amazing. To see people through Christ's loving eyes, though that's overcoming the dark glass. That's seeing them as they are seen by God, and how can you not help but love them when you do? Oh, thank you, Paul. Thank you for teaching me today. Thank you for inspiring me, for giving me something to shoot for by teaching me of Jesus. As we've been doing the last few weeks, can we add to our Apostle Paul quote book just a handful of phrases that have come to mean much to me from the chapters we've studied this week. Again, no commentary, just soak in these sentences. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. Through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? Oh, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth. He that ploweth should plow in hope. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. So run that ye may obtain. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth Take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Be followers of me even as I also am of Christ. Neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. And these members of the body, which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor but covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I have become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Charity never 
faileth. When I became a man, I put away childish things. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. Everything else pales in comparison. I bear my witness of the truths that Paul has taught us. I am grateful for the path they point out, because that's the covenant path. I'm grateful for its kind reminder of the sacrament and what it's meant to accomplish. I'm grateful for the way it changes my view of those around me. I am grateful for its influence in my marriage, in my missionary work, in my association with people all around me, and especially for my relationship with Jesus Christ. The greatest of these is charity, because the greatest of all is Christ.